This week, we welcome Dan DeKloss, founder and CEO at Plextrack, joining us to talk about how the real work gets done, the case studies. In the security news, if software got a security grade, most people would get an F. SolarWinds hackers got some new source code, new old bugs in the Linux kernel, hack stuff and get blown up, stop hacking, air quotes, beer, weekly Chrome Zero Day, Mirai lives long, long live Mirai, how attackers could intercept your text messages, and rigging the election, the homecoming queen election, that is. We round out the show with a special segment from our podcast series with PlexTrack on purple teaming, featuring none other than Bryson Bort. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Keeping up with security issues across thousands of web assets without the right approach to web application security is a daunting task. Get ahead with web vulnerability scanning automation from NetSparker, a leader in dynamic and interactive application security testing known for its ease of use and accurate results. Detect a wide range of vulnerabilities in all legacy and modern web applications. Address security bugs at scale by automating the confirmation process. Automatically prioritize vulnerabilities and assign actionable tickets to the right developers in their native workflows for rapid remediation. For more information on how to scale application security with ease, visit securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to the only in-studio host that doesn't have crazy COVID hair, Mr. Paul Sidorian. Welcome everyone to Paul Security Weekly. It's episode number 687 recorded on March 18th, 2021, right here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, where I have two in studio guests imagine that count them one two in studio host rather i should say mr larry pesce yes. is here with us yeah welcome it's nice to have more than one person with me <laughs> i don't remember the last time there was actually more than i, I know like one the, person as a, as a host in studio this with me. whole business is being able to open up more it's crazy like, right yeah. dr doug white is here with us as well hi. welcome dr doug hi i feel funny <laughs> Oh, it must be that thing I put in your drink. Sorry. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, that. Yeah. No, I asked for that. <laughs> On the lines remotely, Mr. Jeff Mann is here with us. I cannot express how jealous I am that you guys get to be in the studio. My first road trip once I get a vaccination is Rhode Island. Yay. Yay. Tyler Robinson's he's busy right now. He put us on hold. He's like, hold. He's like, I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> he's here with us, though. He's just... He's got a very important call with his drug dealer. And I can say things like that because he can't talk back to me, <laughs> which is hilarious. Mr. Joff Thayer is here with us remotely. Welcome, Joff. Oh, okay, so my only question is, what is crazy COVID hair? Actually, what is hair? Yes, you've got a <laughs> nice shiny, shiny, shiny going on. Mr. Lee Neely is here with us as well. Lee, welcome. Well, I don't know what this crazy COVID hair thing is. We've been able to get haircuts up here since May. I mean, what the hell? Oh, well, I mean, we, we can too. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, who who do I have to impress? <laughs> um, the people in your office. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. exactly. The prosecution rests. If you have a specific guest or topic you'd like us to cover on one of the shows, submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guest. Complete the form. We review those 
on a regular basis. So make sure you do that. Also, if you missed Security Weekly Unlocked, you need to go to our website again. <laughs> this time you go to securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked. And whether you registered for the event previously or not, you can well register if you haven't. In any case, go to securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked and you can watch awesome content and you may have to register depending <laughs> on if you register before or anyway. Uh, just register anytime. I mean, or just register, register a again, lot, Register yeah. again with yeah, an alias. Not? No, yeah. don't uh, or not. I don't. You know ah. what? It doesn't matter as long as you watch <laughs> the talks. Anyway, Dan DeClos, the CEO and president of PlexTrack joins us to run through some customer testimonials. Um, let's see. This segment is sponsored, of course, by PlexTrack. It's the PlexTrack show. Uh, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash PlexTrack to learn more. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Great to be with you. And yeah, I'm a little jealous. You guys are in studio. That's pretty cool. Someday I'll make it out there. But uh, I'm joining you from the beautiful Boise, Idaho, as you can see by my majestic background here. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to, you know, be here in studio have people here with me in studio yeah. uh i don't know if it was joffrey said you know when they get a vaccine just throwing it out there you register for a vaccine using a website just saying mm -hmm. gonna leave it at that yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it you know <laughs> you know been there been there done that wait now waiting <clears throat> Burp, hey, you know it it turns out my town is one of the 18 super duper federal vaccination centers so nice. i got in really quickly oh it's good it was that's cool good. I'm just jealous of all these states that you can get in a vaccine if you're under the age of 60. Yeah. Unlike our state, you have to be 60 or older or have some other condition to be able to get one. And they're not opening it up to anyone. Or you have to be a teacher. Yeah, certain um, conditions. And here, or no, uh, it'll be, it'll be uh, 18. Or uh, sorry, to be May before anyone over the age of 18. Or you just 18. have, like Tyler said, or you have burp suite. I mean, there's always... Yep. That's, <laughs> what, you, that's what my friend Bob told me. Yep. I, I, Have you no. checked your body mass index? Because one of the long-term conditions is a body mass index over thirty. Unless it is a, uh, they are sites run by your state and not FEMA. Uh, you how to, to hack your way to a vaccine coming up next on <laughs> <laughs> so dan I, I, thought, I figured in rhode island you just showed up at the vaccination center and went like would, would mr, <laughs> very mr. mr. washington change <laughs> right. your mind and no yeah doesn't work like that <laughs> no i tried that yeah it didn't, yeah, it's didn't work. Two, two washingtons it's not just <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, so, Dan, other than uh, how to hack your way to a vaccine, <laughs> what else did you want to talk about in this segment? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, are we introducing the uh, the purple team episode? Is it we can do that? Tonight? It I, is, I, yeah. I, so, the, the yeah, so I, we should give some background. We're going to talk about some case studies and testimonials uh, that Dan has, but also we should tee up the. Uh, so, we did a what we call a podcast miniseries. And I actually, I got this idea of watching HBO and watching miniseries. I'm like, we should do podcast miniseries because like we could just do like a few episodes, we could record them. And Dan team were like, yeah, we're totally in. I'm like, and by the time they came out of it, they're like podcast experts now. Like you, he's so comfortable behind the microphone. Uh, so we're releasing the uh, Plex Track miniseries uh, this week. If you go to securityweekly.com forward slash series, that's where our landing page is. I was telling the team earlier, like we send people to like way too many things off of the website. <laughs> I feel like, you know, our audience is going to have fatigue. But if you do go to securityweekly.com forward slash series, it'll be in the menus too. So just, you know, go to our website 
and you'll be able to find a three-part series and we did uh blue team purple team and red team you'll be able to hear the purple team one uh on this episode so we're going to air it on this episode that was with bryson bort uh tyler robinson was the guest for the red team one and the blue team was myself dan and sean it's sean sean, right? sean. Yeah. Yeah, uh, from mm -hmm. Plex Tracks. So Sean's in all of them too, as well. We don't want to downplay Sean. Uh, yeah, Dan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan's in all of them. Sean's <laughs> in all of them. And basically, we you know we talked about uh, these types of exercises in addition to Blue Team, kind of centered around like how you use Plex Track, how that. Uh, but actually, a lot of that isn't. It's more about actually doing these exercises with kind of a splash of like Plex Track in there, and and how it the in. Dan, I love your your title for this is getting the real work done in security because I think we can do all the red, purple, blue exercises we want, but if we're not capturing that in the right place, if we're not tracking that in a system, that work can be lost. So I think we really kind of captured the spirit of uh, what you're trying to accomplish, Dan, with your company. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, our our mission at FlexTrack is to you know keep every security professional focused on identifying and working on the right things, right? And so that was what that whole goal of that podcast series is. And, and we're, we're excited about it. I think, I think it turned out great. And, and I, I, I think it'll be really beneficial for, for everyone that listens. You know, it's not, it's not just a Plex track plug. It's, it's certainly a discussion around, you know, what is the, what does it mean to get the real work done? What is the real work? How do you identify it? Uh, so, yeah, so I think definitely tune in, definitely go check it out and, I'm sorry if you have to listen to my voice for too much <laughs> this hour and you know however long you got the to pull down those episodes but I think they I think you'll find them valuable for sure. Yeah. We we balanced it out. Uh you know Bryson was uh in this one since that the purple team one's going to air with Bryson really well, he's dressed as a unicorn, so make sure you you check out the video because it's, it's <laughs> and hilarious. The beard is a, and the beard know, is it's, epic. It's in full form. It's yeah, it's epic. <laughs> and uh really dug deep excuse me into purple teaming and what that and what that really means and how it's it, so like i got to ask questions about like so when you do a purple team like why do you do you do xyz and if so why and how um and i thought that was really interesting um yeah yeah so, and Dylan, lots of people use your product thankfully and uh, it, well, basically my call to action for you dan was like look our audience listens to us talk to sometimes sponsors and vendors and they appreciate the information when we talk about the problem, when we talk about the solution and how it works. But what they want to hear is, well, like, tell me about someone that actually solved the problem. Like, tell me a story. Um, and I think you have a couple of stories for us today. And, you know, maybe start telling the first one and then all of us will collectively chime in, mostly probably roasting you a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I expect nothing less. Right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, we've got, you know, I've got, Obviously, the nature of the customers that we deal with, we you know, they, we can't always include their names and who they are, and and you know, and and, and rightfully so. I think it's 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 appropriate. You know, we they, they want to. Yeah, every company is going to have issues on like you know logo usage. So so getting case studies out of out of some of our our customers is not always easy. We we I want to I'll, I'll point you to our web, website for one of the case studies that I'm going to talk through a little bit. Um, but the two two cases that, that I kind of wanted to highlight are one with with one that is public, and that's with our uh, Richie May, and, and that was based on our assessments module. You know, we have the the the, the questionnaire based assessments module focused with individuals and teams that are doing questionnaire based assessments, framework based assessments, and so we'll kind of run through them. And then I've got another one where it's 
it was kind of a, a cloak and dagger case study. You know, we can't mention who they are. And I know that kind of seems like, oh, you're just making stuff up. But uh, it's, it's true. You know, I'm scouts honor, you know, but we'll, we'll talk through about, you know, it was an internal pen testing team for a large organization and just the productivity increases and morale increases. Like I thought that one was really interesting as we started talking to them more about, um, you know, we, we were looking for customers that uh, have been on the product and, and on the platform for longer than a year, you know, been, been, you know, year over year users. And, and, uh, and I'll, I'll say that he, the, our point of contact there, he always just says, Hey, I'm, I'm happy as a clam. <laughs> our team is happy mm-hmm. as a clam. So, you know, it's, it's a good dad joke there too. But, um, so yeah, so I, I think we'll start with the, you know, the, the pen testing team, right? Because that's, that's kind of all of our roots, right? Yeah. You really did set out with the pen tester in mind, the independent external third party penetration tester, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and <clears throat> you know, I mean, it was a little bit focused on the from the consulting side, just because that was a lot of my background. But mm. uh, it really has, you know, worked well from the enterprise uh, testing teams as well. Uh, and, and obviously, what we're fo- what we're also finding now is people are getting into these automated pen testing platforms <clears throat> and needing a way to integrate the results into a, into FlexTrack as well, which is great. Uh, so we're continuing to build out integrations with platforms like that. Uh, but this group, you know, they, they came to us. They were one of our earlier customers, <clears throat> and they were looking for a way to automate their pen test reporting. And uh, you know, it was a big challenge for them. They were using. Uh, another product that that wasn't uh, you know meeting all of their needs and helping. It, it, it was, there was a lot of user interface issues that uh, were causing a lot of friction, uh, and so uh, they they came to me uh, from from a recommendation from another friend of theirs. Um, you know, we get a lot of referrals that way too, which is nice. Uh, so they they had they had heard about us, and, and so we. We started working with them, and uh, they liked, you know, kind of the trial that they had, and so they 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 joined up and and uh, started using it, and so we just kind of stayed close. And after about the year mark, you know, I kind of I kind of came back to them and said like, hey, how are things working for you guys? And uh, they they couldn't be they were, you know they they couldn't be more thrilled with the product, which is great, um, you know. But I was like, you know, so what kind of metrics are you guys, you know, have, have you been able to track any kind of metrics on? Any, anything in terms of an ROI from your investment with FlexTrack. And so, so they really mapped out all of the things that they were able to do. Uh, so from a, from a productivity perspective, they were able to conduct about 20% more penetration tests throughout the year, you know, spread across their team. Uh, so when you think about that, um, if you have a five-person team, that's like genuinely a whole person right? Uh, that they didn't have to go higher. And I'm not saying that we're trying to automate away pen test jobs. It's, it's the fact that finding pen testers is a hard thing, right? And most, I mean, if you're a good pen tester, you have a job already, but, right? But so, also, so like a, to, Dan, a difficult, no, I wish difficult maybe is the wrong word, but a, a fickle bunch to market a product to penetration testers. You know, as you said, they were using another product and they're like, the user interface is just terrible, which is interesting because I think as pen testers, we use a lot of interfaces that are pretty terrible and we have to muddle <laughs> through it, right? Or... Better yet, we're testing an interface and we're like, wow, that is a terrible user. My, my job here is to hack, but if I were a user, like I would be really unhappy. But now your product is for pen testers. So did you get a lot of free pen tests in the beginning too? Like I'm sure they like to point <laughs> we out. We still do. Yeah. Free yeah. pen <laughs> test. <laughs> They're not no, shy about, hey, like, mean, hey, Dan, like, you know, you get this cross site scripting in there and, yeah. you know, developing a web app, <laughs> being a developer myself. Uh, sometimes more often uh, than now, it, it's you know it's difficult not to have some yeah. kind of bug that you know someone like a Larry Tyler or anyone else is going to go yeah. So I 
kind of ran that through Burp Suite a little bit. And <laughs> so, yeah, about that. About that. <laughs> Larry's going to report something to me right on the show. I can guarantee it, right? <laughs> or Tyler. That's it. But, uh, yeah. No, yeah. No, this is not the full disclosure mailing list. No, this is not the yeah, full yeah. disclosure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that is nice about kind of our, our clientele is, yeah, they're, they're going to test it. And I, we fully expect them to and, and, and appreciate it, you know, and they, and they, you know, we have had some good reports. Uh, fortunately, nothing like super major, you know, uh, which is great, you know, but, uh, you know, I think that's one thing like, yeah, you and I have talked about before, Paul's like being, being, you know, I wasn't a web app pen tester. So I, I was looking out for all the things that I would test against. And it, it's not, it's not the easiest job to, to try and avoid some of the, some of the more, uh, you know, common security issues within web app testing. But, um, you know, that's just kind of a side note, but, uh, but yeah, so we, you know, we, uh, you know, they, they tested it out and obviously just we're, we're loving it. And I think some of the things that they highlighted were just the, the ease of use, the simplicity, being able to go right to where they needed and getting that report written. Uh, you know, we obviously customized the template that you can export into, and that was a big win for them as well. Um, it's interesting, you know, kind of thinking of the history of FlexTrack, um, my goal was to get away from, and it still is, to get away from document-based delivery of, of findings, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, it, there's certainly a, a value to having a document as an artifact of the engagement, but it can't be the, the primary mechanism for managing results of a pen test in, in any kind of assessment, right? Because it's, it's, it's static, it's, it's not real time, and, and you're copying and pasting stuff and you lose information, people lose uh, you know, lose sight of some of the findings in those reports. So that was the whole goal of FlexRack originally. So I was very adamant to try and avoid any kind of document-based exports of FlexTrack. But you know, being an early startup, uh, you're gonna you're gonna accommodate needs of, of customers. Uh, so this was the customer. This was a customer that really helped you know, kind of push me over the edge of, okay, we're going to, we're going to support the custom templates, right? Cause they had some internal policies around, um, things that, uh, you know, required some of those custom templates, but, um, so it was, you know, it was, it, it was, that was a good experience for them as well, being able to export their, their reports into their custom format template, which obviously is a great feature for everybody, right? Uh, you know, if you're a consulting firm or, or just a larger organization, you can keep everything in your look and feel and, and really can customize that document export to whatever you want it to look like and have multiple forms of the export with the same data. And that saves a lot of time. So, so those were some of the key features early on that they were really uh, clued into. Uh, but, you know, I think some of the other things that really helped them save the time was uh, the ability to write those custom narrative sections early on, uh, be able to sign and have workflows <clears throat> around their pen test reports. Uh, and so, yeah, so they, you know, they they certainly, you know, gathered, uh, you know, a lot more time back in their day. Uh, they were able to go deeper on assessments in terms of being able to spend you know, more, if you, if you had spent, so, so overall, they say, it sounds like they saved about 20% of their time, uh, you know, throughout, throughout their, uh, their whole year in terms of you know, being able to do 20% more work. Um, Dan, but I have a question about that. Of, oh. So were they like Microsoft Word writing reports and then using PlexTrack? Uh, you mean, mean before their, yeah. before their report yeah. writing process? Um, well, like I said, it was like a different tool that still oh, did see. some similar stuff, but getting gotcha. out to a Word document, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and that, that's still their that's still their their mechanism today. It's just the ease of use with Plutrick. Things like our write ups database was much easier to use. Yep. Uh, so if you yeah, have those have you reusable found, findings, like especially from a pen tester, like you know, 
we have these religious arguments about Emacs versus VI versus Nano. <laughs> and I think, you know, a lot of us yeah, get comfortable in as much as we have a love. There's only one answer. There, I agree. There is I agree. There is only VI, but we get comfortable with an editor for writing Microsoft <clears throat> Word for really lack of anything else. How was their transition to writing inside of your interface, right? Because I'm assuming you have to transition from Word to, I mean, they use another product, right? But in there, how has that transition been? Maybe not just for this customer, but others. Yeah, I mean, I think I think people welcome it, you know, very, very much. Uh, I mean, you know, I think as, as we've grown as technology, you know, we're all used to now writing in, in web-based platforms, right? And so the fact that you can do rich text editing, uh, is is an easy transition, and I think people want to throw a word out the window if they can, right? Yeah. And so, uh, I, I've not met people that love writing reports in Word, especially when you're like dealing with pen tests or evidence of like screenshots and all these things where you've got yeah, like does the text tons, go tons of information. Abo- above my image on the side <laughs> of my image? Like you know, we can do like really crazy stuff on a pen test, and then you get to write in the report. And, right. Like I just want the text over what the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or this screenshot is like you know was taken on a high res yeah. Mac, and so you got to shrink it down like twenty times before it yep. actually fits to the page. Things like that that really just you. I think one thing that's always interesting to me is is sometimes we as pen testers or technologists don't recognize how much our time is worth, yeah, uh, and what people are paying us to do. And so, like sometimes you just kind of stop and think, man, I just spent two hours. Uh, resizing screenshots and formatting my image so the text looks right around (laughs) it right two hours it's like is this really the best use of my time and then it gets all screwed up about 15 minutes later you get it all just right and then you change and then change something above it and it shifts it down and it's like oh god (laughs) yeah somebody else comes in and edits and and screws up everything you spent the last two hours fixing by putting a comment in yeah oh my my god that is such the experience though too (laughs) i mean it's Mm -hmm. like oh my god yeah. You're killing so, me, so, yeah. You're killing yeah. me. Beyond making so the editing about, process. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask, beyond the editing process, don't you also help with consistency of process overall? Repeatable? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you have you have a single platform to consistently do the same types of engagements and those kinds of things. So everything just starts to remove friction throughout the engagement life cycle. And that's, that's one thing that our customers are really excited about all the time, right? Is that I, you know, they, 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 I, I mean, I, obviously I'm tuning my own horn, but like, you know, they, they, they can't imagine life now after, you know, from what it was like before Plex track, like it's, it's, so it's, it's really just, it's becoming, you know, it's just a, a part of their necessity for how they, how they execute their program. Um, but yeah, all the workflow management and things like that really speed up the amount of time that it takes to execute an engagement. And, and, I think that what's another thing now, this is just a side note. It's not necessarily with this customer that, that I'm talking about, but uh, having that consistency of being able to also train up uh, younger or more junior uh, level pen testers or any kind of assessors where you have, this is our methodology. You know, you can line it out. These are the things that we're always going to test for um, really make a difference. And, and I think also, you know, help, you know, grow, grow the field, grow, grow the talent that we need to be able to, to fill these gaps that we have within organizations. Cause I think every organization, uh, you know, whether they're, I mean, I would say most mid-size organizations and up are already thinking about how are they going to build out some form of a pen testing capability within their environment. Right. Um, the, the annual pen test just doesn't cut it. 
Uh, and so, uh, so a lot of organizations are continuing to figure out ways to build up that capability in-house. And so, so a platform like ours really helps facilitate those, those engagements on a continuous basis. Uh, and then, and then, and then the flip side of that is, or not the flip side, but the, the, the end of that, not the end, but just part of that process is the tracking and remediation life cycle. So not just, not just being able to get the report into their hands, but being able to collaborate with them through the platform on the remediation life cycle. Um, Dan, so that's, I, a, that's, that's a huge time saver. Collaboration with customers is fantastic, but we also, you know, just mentioned that there's collaboration between pen testers on the same team and we review mm-hmm. or contribute to each other's reports. Often, this is another kind of Microsoft Word nitpicky thing. We leave comments for each other. And like Google Docs used to be pretty terrible at this, right? You leave a comment or you make an edit. And then like if you look at it with editing on, like you, you can't, the document is unreadable because there's all these like red lines through everything and green text and all this stuff. Um, do you find that uh, pen testers have a better time helping each other review their work? Uh, in in PlexTrack, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, being able to to keep everything in one in one platform and and not having, I mean, you know, just scrolling through a Word document is a pain, right? Mm. <laughs> and so so being able to to uh, to assign it, you know items to to users and things like that. And, oh, and I see. So you make it modu- you make it modular because the mm-hmm. no matter what technology you have, everyone working on the same document. There's always issues. When we used to use a wiki, right? right. Was, there's issues. I mean, it's not always horrible, but there's always, you know, uh, collision issues. And remember, we used to use Lotus Notes. We used to have a lot of document collisions, right? Uh, but what you're seeing in PlexTrack, you can modularize. So Larry's got this section. Paul has this section. We write our uh, sections independently, and then we can put them together and review each other's work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 and we're continuing to enhance those capabilities as well. I mean, it's I mean, we've got some exciting stuff coming this year that I'm, I think everyone's going to be really excited about as well. Um, you know, just just continuing to get in that mindset of the document export is really an artifact. It's not how we're going to continue to communicate findings and risks to organizations and and internal uh, departments within our enterprise, right? So, so that's that's ultimately the goal. Um, you know, but like, you know, with this, with this particular customer, not only were they able to overall save an inordinate amount of time on the assessments they were currently conducting specifically within the reporting life cycle phase of the life cycle, they, they were upwards of 60 to 75% of just the time saved on reporting. Right. So if you think about how much time that gets you back yeah. into the engagement, you can go deeper on the assessment. Uh, you can find the more intricate vulnerabilities, which ultimately leads to better security, right? And I think that's that's obviously the mission, right? Is to is to find those, especially like for us web pa- web pen testers. It's like you find that you know super intricate vulnerability on Friday at like three p.m., right? Because you spent the whole week learning the application, and you're like this this is where I dig in really really deep. And so the more time you have to to go that deep on an assessment, uh, the, the better security you're going to be able to provide to your organization because you're actually going to be able to report those things. Uh, and I, I thought that was a really interesting tidbit of information. And then finally, like one thing that, that has always stuck out to me is they just their team has more uh, higher, higher morale, um, which that was an interesting side effect that I was not necessarily anticipating. Obviously, um, nobody likes writing reports and it's not that it's not that like people love writing reports you know uh, but they like using plextract to do it because it's so much easier and saves them so much more time 
Uh, and are you saying you made it, it so people like writing reports, Dan? See, I, I'm That's not, a bold see, claim. I don't want to. I don't want to say that. I want to say that they like it better. <laughs> they like it better. <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go. The bar was set really low before, uh-huh. so they like it yeah. better. It's safe. It's safe. I, I think, yeah, I think you know, the way you oh, should actually man. phrase that is, I like it less bad. It yeah, sucks yeah, less. Yeah, it it sucks it's less. sucks less. Yeah. Josh gets his marketing wings. Yeah, is there is there a uh, is there like a test data set? It was a comment on on uh, Discord about it would be you know nice to teach this in school, and I, I was wondering, are there like test data sets that you could use so that students who are studying this could pull those test data sets together? You know that, that are that have known outcomes, known expectations. Because one of the really big challenges for educators on any of this stuff is building data sets to work with because it's really hard. I mean, I've done it, and it's really hard to put together stuff like this, like just like Wireshark data or anything else. Yeah, you can go capture a whole bunch of stuff, but then you know it's really tough to pick through that and get good sets that are clean, that aren't going to have problems. And I was just wondering. Uh, that is a great question. I mean, we have our write-ups database. I mean, those are those are you know, kind of pre-built findings that come from from various sources like Burp and and AWS uh, config scans, those kinds of things. So that's those are ways that you could like generate a skeleton report of a find, uh, you know, kind of a, of a pen test or you know any kind of assessment. We also have our questionnaires that that come with the. Uh, the CIS top 20, but those are, you know, those are going to be geared towards, and even like CMMC and PCI, those are going to be geared towards those questionnaire-based outcomes. Um, but I think that's a great idea. And we, you know, we'd be happy to work with, you know, we worked with uh, one of my, one of my good friends uh, is a professor at the University of Washington. And we, we gave his class an a- uh, access to uh, PlexTrack to, it, it was a pen testing course. It was like red teaming and blue teaming. And, and so, uh, it, you know, it, they used it for their exercises of how to, you know, how, what a red team finds and how to report that to a blue team and how to come up with the recommendations. So, I mean, we're more than happy, you know, we love giving back to the community in that regard. So, um, well, just shoot me an email, Dan at plextract.com and we'll, we'll get them squared away. Well, there's probably a lot of people would be interested in that because a lot of these products that come out as more people are teaching these kind of materials, you know, it's really useful to have things from that, that work that you can use in class easily. And you'll get a lot more adoption, yeah. you know, that way by, by people that don't have to go out and build their own data sets. If, if you've got, you know, nice templates, nice examples and things like that. It's the Apple model. Yeah, we, get in, get it in the hands yeah, of students. Well, and that, that is very smart. I mean, you get mm-hmm. it to students when students graduate, they go to their employers because the forensics did this. And, and some of the big forensics companies started, you know, basically giving <laughs> us like, like we got FTK, which goes to eight thousand dollars a license for free, right? And the students learn it, and then when they get jobs, they go, "Why are we using this instead of yeah. FTK?" Because I know that, and so it, it is a it is a smart uh, marketing move, but it, it's also very useful to get people to adopt it when uh, there's stuff like that available, because it it really it really facilitates you teaching a class on that and 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 doing it well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great idea. I mean, and obviously, we 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 love we love working with. Uh, you know the training and education community for sure so um, yeah we'd be and we do have you know some baseline templates that people can like well, here's here's what a good pen test report looks like you know we've we've got tons of uh, experience now in that we've probably converted over over 200 templates from different customers um, and i think this is just a side note um uh, obviously, there's different qualities of, of of different types of assessments, and and some of the more elite, you know, what what the industry would call the elite teams that we work with, uh, their their reporting templates are very simple. 
Uh, and I think that's just an important aspect in that how you communicate risk is in and in, in the services that you provide are really what's most important, right? Um, probably the, the 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 ones that get really com- convoluted and complex, you're probably not uh, you know not doing it right. <laughs> and so we advise our customers on that those kinds of things as well, right? So. So I, I was thinking I was in an earlier conversation today about, you know, so many people don't know how to write reports. How do you teach them? And that's, I'm thinking that's right where Doug's going too. You not only have sample data, and probably in the labs you can collect data over time as you create different labs, but then being able to teach the, teach the students how to, how to, what to do with it and how to make it look right. Holy uh, crap. That is Pays super. Bar. That's super challenging too, because I and I mean I teach forensics, and and one of the biggest time spends we have is me harassing people. I have all these warnings in there, like you may well cry, because I'm going to give you so much grief about your reporting because you don't know how to clearly and concisely tell me what you found, and you and it's amazing, it is amazing how bad these things can be. I mean pen testing reports too. I mean they, they can just be horrible but in school that's the time to make those it is and i mean mistakes. that's when you want to make people yes. cry I, that sounded that sounded bad no but, I mean, you you really enjoy making your students cry like if you're so, you're not learning with doug if you haven't broken down to true, tears yeah. at least twice yeah exactly. in the I mean, first that's like a graduation requirement <laughs> but i mean seriously it's like i i mean i i literally i read forensics reports to people on video so you send me your report. I read it to you in video, and I just literally say what I think about it, like when I'm reading it. And I'm, and I mean, and it's just, it's just astounding that people. But don't. you know, I wish people did that for me. No, they should. I mean, I, it wasn't until I was writing professionally, good, well into my career, before I got a team that was like, "You, where did you learn how to write? Yeah. Like you suck." And I'm like, "Thank you so much," because my writing actually improved because uh-huh. you need that, and I think you it's do. good that you're putting that in. And I mean, that needs it, to be earlier on in the. And then the when you give these yeah. reports to upper management, they will eat you alive. I mean, they're and they 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 are going to read it when they don't understand it. They will literally come after you, and it's going to be high level people who are going, "Wow, this guy's a Yahoo! Mm. Why why did we hire him?" I mean, or in court. I mean, you're going to get absolutely flambéed mm. in a deposition because you made mistakes or you just don't know how to organize material. And pen test is is in many ways is even more difficult than forensics because it's so esoteric. So much of what you're doing, is, you know, involves jargon. I mean, a lot of times forensics reports are like, <clears throat> he had a noose and here's a picture of it. Or, you know, and I mean, it's pretty straightforward. But you get into the pen test stuff and you're talking about port 7700 was open, you know, and, and people are going, wait, what's, what's a port exactly? And I mean, it just gets so complicated so fast. Admittedly, uh, on a pen test report, there's, you know, potentially multiple different audiences. Yeah. And that, you know, you write to your audience, you have different portions of the report that are getting written to specific audiences. And some of those audiences need to be at least this tall to write. <laughs> but they may not be and they may not and yeah i've i've had my share of those customers too so right. yeah so, um, <clears throat> listen aren't we also doing collaborative report generation it's not just one on one one report by one author because i was thinking it, one it, of the it, other hard go ahead go ahead in in plex track is that what you're asking yeah 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 absolutely yep because one of the other thing, hard things to learn is to, is when somebody else is editing your work, not to take it personally and and go go two part on them, um, and that that's another good skill. 
Yeah, that's. Yeah, I think absolutely. that's one of the highlights of of Plex Track is the ability to keep a consistent report across multiple uh, contributors and editors. Right, getting that final product output into a consistent manner, even with writing and findings databases, uh, makes a huge difference. Having something that generates a finalized, formatted document that can then further be edited. That's the nice thing about PlexTrack is it doesn't change your process as much uh, to the point of you can't adopt this now. You can adopt this now, use it, and output a, a report that then gets further edited or sent to you know, multiple SME reviews or copy editors. Uh, all that stuff still happens and can you know, output a, a docx, but it just is more consistent. You're not wasting time on the things that don't matter, and you're getting consistency on your findings and or the process and methodology using stuff like the run books uh, and the the methodology pages the run books are a fantastic just tool in general so that you have consistent testing and you're able to mentor and have uh, consistent documentation in a single place where reports are getting written and can be referred to as the reports are being generated those are huge from uh, from a pen test standpoint and it's very very hard to orchestrate that across a large team for those who have led many teams and been in charge of doing this across multiple engagements and multiple customers at the same time, keeping that consistency and all the info straight and all the tester straight and making sure all the progress is still moving forward and you're not passing docs all over and you got versioning issues, like this solves a lot of the things that cause people to rage on pen tests. And you want consistency from pen test to pen test to pen test too by, by, by these teams. And I, I do think products like this really facilitate that because when you get a lot of variation, some of these reports are going to result in litigation. They're going to result in, in all kinds of things. And you want that consistency, uh, you know, as you develop your reporting style for your company or your group or whatever. And I mean, I was always trying to do that when we were doing these kind of reports and, you know, trying to say, we need to make this look just the same. It needs to be in the same format. It needs to be the same style, you know, from this one to this one to this one. We need to prove fiduciary harm. Yes, this is that's right. <laughs> terms. Dan, uh, did you have another case study from uh, switching to the internal pen test red team side? Was yeah. that the other? Well, so, th so that one was the internal pen oh, test okay. team, right? Gotcha. You know, they, they, they were internal, but they, you know, they were able to get more done, go deeper on assessments, have higher morale. You know, so I think, I, I think one thing from the enterprise perspective is that they didn't have to go hire another penetration tester. And, and that meant, you know, saving time on that hiring process, mm -hmm. saving time on that, that internal training process and still get the same amount of work done. Right. So, so we were a force multiplier for them and that, gotcha. that was kind of rounding out that, that little gotcha. case study. And but, so uh, your next case study was centered around what now I, I forget. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was a, a, an actual consulting firm that is more focused on, you know, governance, risk and compliance type of assessments. Uh, so they do a lot of, and, it, and that, this one is public, you know, we, well, we publish this on our website and I'll also mention just side note, we do have several white papers out there and one of them is how to write a penetration test report. Nice. Um, so that's always a great resource for, for those of you that, um, based on what, what we've <coughs> seen wait, in our, now, now wait, Dan, excuse I, me, Dan, you're a pen uh, test uh, tool, but uh, now Jeff's going to ask you questions about compliance. So brace yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm, I actually want to mention that I that I you know filled out the form on your website to get the how to write a killer pen test report like a half hour ago, and I'm still waiting for the confirmation email. Still look, waiting. Look at Dan's going to this <laughs> keyboard. He's 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 chatting at his yeah. employees, going, "What are you Where's doing? The, where is it? Yeah, not Shit. not to I'll, call you out or anything. Jeff, I almost spit <laughs> bourbon onto my computer. God damn it! Sorry. Don't waste bourbon. Um, 
Dan's like, but wait, why? I thought you were yeah, getting yeah. Dan's like, hold on, like, can I can I get a compliance question instead? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can well, certainly ask a, a compliance <laughs> question or two. How, how, are you guys coming along with uh, grappling with PCI? Ding. That's a, good. That's you a know, softball uh, question. Right. Yeah. So, so, so Jeff, we actually help with PCI in bone management aspects as well, you know, in, in terms of companies complying with, with PCI. Right. Um, but, but from the assessment side, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of consulting firms and any internal teams for enterprises that, that do the regular PCI assessments. Um, so uh, we actually have the capability now to export into the PCI rock, um, which that is a beast, right. Um, of a, of a template. Uh, so that's yes. one nice thing about that custom templating feature with Plextract is that we can get we can get into those formats. Um, but uh, yeah, we have we have the assessment that you can take for for PCI and and use to just track you know track those those results. Um, so Richie May is the group that uh, they did the case study for us, um, and they they do all kinds of great assessments. It's interesting. They're they're one of the and I I don't want to misspeak because. Um, I don't know. Well, I don't know all the details of and what I'm allowed to share, but they do some really cool, interesting uh, assessments for some other industries uh, in mm-hmm. like in media. And uh, and so there's certain compliance frameworks that they also use Plex Track uh, to uh, be able to conduct those assessments as well. But, uh, you know, their case study shows also a 20 percent improvement uh, from being able from from soup to nuts of conducting an engagement. So not only you know, improvement on the reporting side, but actually facilitating the engagement so we have this questionnaires module and the runbooks module is very similar uh you know we're we're, we're finding a lot of people you know saving the same amount of time during their engagement through runbooks as well uh that module is obviously a little newer uh so uh but with the assessments module you know you can build out your own questionnaire you can use a template uh, a baseline questionnaire like the pci assessment or cmmc we have built out uh, so you can use those, but then you can also tweak them and edit them to make them your own uh, and conduct those assessments on a routine basis throughout the uh, engagement, or I mean, throughout uh, the year with our platform, each engagement can submit and normalize into a standard report, just like every other report that gets re- generated in FlexTrack. So they they have a great case study in a, in a white paper as well, uh, or, or I mean, yeah, it's a white, white paper on our website. Um, just about you know using FlexTrack and, and the improvement that they've made and and they're continuing to expand their their assessments that they can can conduct now uh, because of us right so or as a, you know as an assistant to to their their process so so well, what would be really yeah. I, I I still have the compliance floor <laughs> until yeah, Paul yeah, 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 yeah. what would be really cool in a in a report uh, that is uh, the output of red teaming, blue teaming, whatever exercises from a PCI perspective is if you have a finding, uh, uh, you know, and let's just say it's a vulnerability finding and let's say it's, uh, uh, you know, a misconfiguration. It would be really cool if a report, not saying it has to be you guys, would say, we found this problem, this this misconfiguration, and yes, you need to go fix it, but also you need to, f- it would be really cool if you could flag, this impacts your PCI compliance because you're now messing, you know, missing the boat on PCI DSS requirement, you know, x.y. So, so any, did you know any, that we can do that, or, or are you saying that would be cool if we did that? 
because we can do that. <laughs> if if you can do that, you have my interest. I, I would love to see a demo example, something along those lines, if that could be arranged. We have a whole mini-series coming out um, that you can go ahead and check out on Security Weekly. Uh, just coming right up. So which, which of the three yeah. episodes focuses on PCI, Tyler? Yeah, they don't. That, I, well, we probably might talk mine. About it, I'm it, sure. No, no, we were we were actually we actually toyed with doing a whole segment on compliance, but decided to you know. against it at this time, just because we thought blue, red, and purple yeah. were more interesting. Based on audience demand, you know, we can. It wasn't a color. It was you know why yeah. it wasn't a color. So <laughs> right. I wanted to cover yeah, all the yeah, colors yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really do think we should we should if do one. If compliance no. was a color, what color would it be? That's so, so, we have to open that up. I mean, you know, do we know of anywhere we could talk to Dan about that? Hmm. No, nothing comes to mind. Nothing comes. There's to a mind. range. Of, there's a range of shows out there. I'm sure we can find one. <laughs> hey, I know security and compliance weekly. You could, we could talk about it there. I like, yeah. actually, yeah. I like this idea. Yeah. Cause I did. Because I was actually kind of dance like, yeah, we do like compliance when help with compliance reporting. You should do what, just do it on yeah. Security and Compliance Weekly. I mean, I mean, they do they do that full length show all the time, and that that'd be a great uh, that's a great topic for that show. Mm. Uh, all right, I'll talk to you next Tuesday, Dan. There you go. Okay, all <laughs> right. It now. <laughs> so Andrea, make it happen. Make it make it so. <laughs> make it so. All right, yeah. I, I yield the floor, Paul. Thank you, Jeff. So Dan, I second that. Uh, the <laughs> anything else on the customer that was using it more for compliance-focused uh, tasks and tracking? Uh, no, I mean just just the ability to 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 start their engagement process, do it all within the platform, immediately generate the report, and then even then from there manage those results, tag them, and and compile the findings for the customer however they want them to be seen and then export into their documents uh, in their format and their branding. Uh, you know, it just, it continues to save them an inordinate amount of time. Uh, and so that's that just removing that friction in their process has really been, you know, the most valuable for them uh, getting rid it, it's still crazy to me. And I, Jeff, I don't know if you see this, it, how many assessments get done in spreadsheets. And, and I'm, I mean, you know, I've been in this space for 15 years. Is plus there years, any so other way? <laughs> I don't, it's just, it makes my, makes my, uh, you know, my joints hurt <laughs> seeing it. No, happen, I, I so. actually abhor spreadsheets like most of us, but yeah, most of them are done in multiple spreadsheets for multiple tasks. Yeah. Yeah. So but I don't trying, like trying I'm, to do our part to help. Like <laughs> well, cool. Dan, you, you and I have had this conversation, the spreadsheets in, why it's a tool to accomplish a task, but not a collaborative tool that really helps you get the work done. I think it helps you achieve tasks. It doesn't help you improve the efficiency in your workflow and actually get things get things done. Yeah. Oh, and that reminds me. You know, one other thing that is that is you know another benefit of 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 the of the using the Plex Track is at the end of the day, then they can they can view the analytics module. So I think, you know, there was discussion around like, you know, having that consistency across reports. And then in the analytics module, you can actually compare year over year reports and start to see, hey, we know these were conducted in a consistent consistent fashion. So therefore the metrics that are coming out of those are more reliable in terms of like last year we had a hundred findings. This year we have 50. 
these are the ones that are more critical, you know, and, and so you can start to get that, that analysis and benchmarking established, which is really important when you're trying to talk to your directors or your board, uh, your executive staff around, you know, are we making progress? Are we, are we getting better, right? Conveying, conveying metrics and keeping track of that across multiple pen tests has been a problem for a long time and still is a major problem. That's one of the big things that major companies are looking for is that consistency across metrics, the ability to track or remediate, ask questions, have that continual communication with your pen test or offensive team, and then the ability to have those metrics in one place uh, and maybe even take you know reports and, and import them from, from older places. But that's that's something that Word docs can't do. Yeah, we need that snapshot in time uh, and everybody is always there for that deliverable. But at the end of the day, we've got to get past this Word document generation for uh, making security improve, right? Like that's like getting to secure and being a destination in security. It's not the process. Like security is consistently improving and consistently changing and we're always moving forward and adapting. So why are our reports so static where they're getting lost and buried in a file server in a share that maybe, you know, the executive staff looked at once a year ago when they had a, a yearly compliance or whatever audit. Like we've really got to get past that and make strides in something that is more modern, whether that's, you know, a, a interactive HTML page, whether that's PlexTrack, Across the board, I think that is a huge area that security is failing in. And consistently, we, we see good tools, good UIs, good places that are doing this in other vectors with inside of security, just not in our reporting and offensive delivery or remediation. That's, that's why you need standardization, too, so that you can get to those kind of standardized metrics. Because I, I agree with you. I, I want to see a sta I don't want to see a metric here that says this is bad, and the same metric over here, and it says this is good, even though they're really the same thing. And you have to standardize up, or you won't ever be able to compare and contrast. And, and you're starting to see more interest in that. I think uh, in the in in the in the big industry, not just an, an individual. More people are wanting to see reports that can be released and, and stuff that can be standardized, so they can compare themselves to those reports. Yeah, well, I, I use the term attestation all the time, and and maybe half the people that I ever talk to understand what that word means. <laughs> so maybe I'll try to keep evangelizing like the importance of attestation, and that regardless of what firm is doing the test, we do need a standardized way to attest security, right? And I think you're right. I think that they, that we're continuing to to gravitate towards that. What's interesting too to me is is you know the penetration test. Is, is one of the most serious tests that's going to be conducted in your environment. It's going to, it's going to open your kimono <laughs> as deep as anyone's going to go. Right? Colonoscopy. And, and wow. Yet, <laughs> wow. I, I agree with you philosophically, but uh, the PCI reality for most companies is it's you know, lowest cost, let's get it over with, let's get it done. We've so what he's saying, though, Jeff, is that your, your pen test is, testing is really serious, but your compliance testing is a joke, is what was implied. <laughs> no, I did not. What I'm saying, Paul, is uh, most companies don't leverage the opportunity to conduct a pen test that could be the most important thing that they do they they go for the you know low bidder low low ball uh just the bare minimum to get it over with type of thing even worse than in yeah you know, than no, the vulnerability scanning requirements and dan yeah, just for the yeah, record exactly. dan did not say compliance was a joke <laughs> <laughs> 
that was I was <laughs> no. no he said well, uh, he said nine one one was a joke and you almost made me forget the other thing uh, you know uh, you you brought up the word attestation if only there was some you know compliance program that's been around for I don't know seventeen years that that produces an attestation of compliance on an annual exactly. basis exactly yeah you know like mm. like the PCI rock like yeah. <laughs> Well, the yeah, PCI no, Rock is a separate document. Now? There's, there's oh, okay. a second. There's a. Well, I've been drinking for a while. There's a second document that's actually called the attestation of compliance, in which officers of the company say everything we've told our assessors is true to the best of our knowledge, and we're really doing all these things that we claim to be doing. Gotcha. Uh, despite the best efforts of the QSA trying to prove them wrong, mm. we, we and, call that the first lie. And and despite the uh, best efforts of the the folks answering the questions to remain ignorant, yeah, that you know, too. You know, Boy, Dan, I think you need time. to develop a PCI center of excellence in the Baltimore area. There you go. There you go. So, just no, no there can be only be one Lee. I am the Baltimore. <laughs> I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say. It's been drinking for a while now. <laughs> can be only one. <laughs> no need to reinvent the wheel. It exists already. Let's use it. Dan. Yeah. As always, it's been a pleasure. Um, I had a lot of good laughs on this this segment, actually. Uh, at the expense of compliance there towards the end. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> really just a joke. Um, but you can check out the uh, series, securityweekly.com forward slash series. There's a, it's actually a four-part series. So red, uh, I don't remember the order, red, blue, purple, uh, and then uh, a full demo uh, of the product is what we put together. So you can consume that on YouTube. Uh, there'll be a, a playlist. Uh, you can get the, the audio. Um, and I mean, uh, I'll be transparent. Like we do it as a series and yes, there's four, but I want there to be more in all of our series, right? And it could be it could be soon, it could be later, but you know, when you subscribe, you might not see something for, for a while, but we kind of want to, if you want more, tell us what you want to add on and, to that and you series. Know what? You just hit on the title of all of the series. What's that? Red, blue, purple, and transparent. And transparent. Yeah. Transparent's yes. the demo. Yep. I like there it. You that's go. the name oh, of the whole. Oh, that's like the that. name of the whole show. It's red, blue, purple, and. And this is why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> it is <laughs> mind blown. Yeah, that's like that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody legs. started paying Larry. <laughs> Wait, well, uh, you get y'all uh, getting paid for this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just copyrighted the whole thing, Larry. So Shit. you you'll get a taste <laughs> of the, you'll get a taste of purple at the end of the show. And uh, Dan, thank you very much for appearing on this episode yeah. of Paul Security Weekly. Make sure you check out securityweekly.com forward slash series. And with that, we'll take a short break. Come back with the security news. Homecoming elections are hacked. Coming up next. FlexTrack is the platform that helps cybersecurity practitioners get the daily work done. Red teams can create reports in half the time and track risk to resolution with the blue team. Teams can centralize remediation efforts across all scans, assessments, and audits. Effectively communicate risk in real time through simple visualizations, scanner and ticketing integrations, and robust analytics. FlexTrack is perfect for collaboration across all teams. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash FlexTrack to claim your free month. Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR, vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. 
Welcome back, everyone, to uh, Paul's Security Weekly. If you want to stay in the loop, all things Security Weekly, visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Subscribe uh, via your favorite podcast catcher to all the shows on our network. We've got shows on compliance, shows for CISOs and leadership, um, all kinds of shows. Application Security Weekly. Dr. Doug White does the news every week. You can subscribe to all those shows and more, including our mailing list, YouTube channel, and Discord by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe. Our next webcast, the one we did today was a lot of fun. We got Linux and Nerdy with Brandon from Capsulate and it was awesome. The next one will be April 29th, 11 a.m. Eastern time. You're gonna learn how to prepare for modern ransomware attacks with none other than Jake Williams. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts, former NSA hacker. I think everyone, everyone is the former NSA hacker, right? Jake Williams will be on for the next webcast. That'll be a good time. Gonna be, fun. gonna be fun. So, well, speaking of good times. Speaking of good times, you want to have a good time with Joff? Yeah. For Don't a good yeah. time, email Joff. <laughs> oh, sorry. Joff has an announcement. <laughs> uh, so you want me to say something? Uh, no, uh, I, I was going to do my five-minute plug. Uh, for my upcoming class. Um, some of you may have seen this on the Twitters. I did a class called Enterprise Attacker Emulation and C2 Implant Development. Um, we ran this class back in January. We had a really, really great attendance. It was the first run of the class. I think it was amazingly successful. Um, in fact, I think Tyler, our co-host, was part of, part of the uh, class, and I think Tyler very much enjoyed the class. We are running the same class again. Uh, this May the 4th, uh, it is virtual, uh, under the uh, Wild West Hackenfest uh, platform, um, and uh, it is uh, Enterprise Attacker Emulation and C2 Implant Development. We go over a number of great techniques, uh, talking about commodity C2 frameworks, uh, talking about threat modeling and attacker emulation, anatomy of C2 channels, talking about an open C2 wrap framework that I developed. Uh, talking about a lot of um, different techniques uh, for shellcode execution, for process injection, uh, and uh, just a just a bunch of really really good stuff. So it's a 16-hour uh, course. It's relatively inexpensive. Uh, we're charging $495 ahead, and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna have a good time. So what we do is is over four days, we do four hours a day. So a nice pace. Um, there's a uh, virtual machine that I provide uh, uh, via uh, Azure uh, for all the materials, and uh, we have labs that go along with it. And I guess the other thing I should mention is that we donate a portion of the proceeds from the class to underrepresented uh, uh, communities in the information security world, and uh, those are uh, female women groups uh, today. Um, that are demographically underrepresented in the information security community. So uh, we try to um, – we're, we're running at about 10%, I think is the number, uh, of the proceeds go to our underrepresented communities in information security. So uh, it's about three or four different groups that we donate to, and uh, it's a really good time. So I hope you'd like to sign up and join me. Jeff, what, you may have said it already, and uh, what are the dates? Uh, we're starting May the 4th for this class ah, May the 4th uh, through uh, May the, uh, I guess that would be the 7th, uh, so four hours a day. We run 11 a.m., uh, well, actually, it's usually noon to 4 EST, 
um, 11 a.m. on the first day just so everybody can get orientated and stuff. Uh, and I did flip to a web page to look at that, so you probably saw that nice glow off of my uh, uh, mm-hmm. face. But, uh, yeah, um, and uh, we're also running the same thing at Wild West Hackenfest Way West in Reno, Nevada in June, if you're interested as well. And that one will be a live class over two days, which I'm teaching on June the uh, 15th and 16th, if I've got that correctly. No, 14th and yep, 15th. You got it right. There we go. Fifteenth <laughs> uh, and sixteenth, I'm on. I'm on the Wild West hacking. Oh my god! I'm glad somebody's right keeping now. me straight. And Joff, anyway, and uh, Joff, the one at Wild West is uh, in person only. Correct. It is in person only. That is correct. Roger that. You come oh, is that the Wild one West. in Re- Reno, Nevada, or something? Reno, Nevada. That's way That's west. Right. Wild West Hacking Fest, way west. Mm. Uh, which we're really, really looking forward to. First of all, I'm getting out of the house, mm. <laughs> so it's Yay! like the first time traveling. In over a year, the last trip I went on was California in February of 2020. Uh, so I have not been out of the house for a long time. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to, if you want to come to the class in person uh, and and actually uh, have this in person only, by the way, that that one's not going to be video streamed remote. Uh, then uh, the June opportunities uh, open for you. So either way. Love to have you, and uh, hey, hey, Tyler, I, I can actually ask Tyler this. What did you think of the first class? Because you were one of my students. The class was actually fantastic. Uh, from a malware development standpoint, it is one of the best classes I've taken. I've taken quite a few. I was going to say, uh, is it the covered... only class on malware development that you've taken, Tyler? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've actually, I've actually helped write a class, uh, and I've taught a class on it, and seeing how Joff did his class, it was very well put together, very easy to understand from, like, if you needed to come into it and you didn't have prior malware development, uh, it is teaching you next-level techniques. These are essential for any mature client. This is what you have to know in order to operate at the level of uh, a decent red team, so... Uh, I think from that standpoint, like this is a great entry point for people that are trying to up their game in the offensive space. And if you're just looking for some good TTPs and some malware development, uh, Joff has done a great job with uh, his tool, and I've already expanded what he's done. So it's, hey, Tyler. Uh, it's pretty good. Hey, Tyler. I'm always looking for some good TTPs. Hit me up after oh, the show. Maybe. And by the way, TTPs just just for the record, just for the record, I did not pay Tyler anything to say that. <laughs> Yet. Um, I paid Joff to say that in his class. No, he was legitimately a student in my class. He was excited to be there, and I asked him for very honest criticism and uh, peer review. And, of course, he's actually just given it to you live on the show. So uh, he also gave it to me in private. So I, we whoa, have whoa, a really whoa, good time. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, yeah, whatever. What's going on? <laughs> I, I said, I said show. Uh, and that's the news. I said, <laughs> that concludes the news for this week. Thanks everyone for listening and watching. We'll see you next time. I sent three. <laughs> I sent three students to that class, and the comments. I, I, they had other comments, but one comment was <laughs> "mind equals blown." Uh, one, one, com- one comment was the good comment. And that's what we'll go uh, yeah. with. <laughs> one comment was humbling, and one comment was I was giving it to Joff in private. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is a tough guy. <laughs> 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 oh, tough man. crowd tonight. Is <laughs> the kind of crowd you don't want to use SMS text messages for your second factor or your password. <laughs> <laughs> Love of God. I, and I think that okay. becomes a segue. 
<laughs> right here, right now. Um, Although, so I, anyway, I do want to clarify. Like, I would love to put this out there. There was a lot of banter on Twitter about this. And personally, I had to step back and think about this. From the standpoint of what your threat vectors are and what security improvements you are doing by adding a second factor, even if it is SMS, adding that next level to deter attackers or just plain old credential stuffing or password guessing, SMS is still better than not having it. And there was a bunch of pushback on on Twitter about that you should just not have it. If you're, if you're going to have SMS, just don't have it. I still well, kind of think stupid. that this is, the, this is the first time we've seen a, a <clears throat> real good public um, demonstration of how SMS can be abused. I mean, we've been abusing it, and we've you know we've talked about and, and advised our clients about how not to do SMS, you know, two factor, and that's just good practice if you have highly secure things to do. But it's still better than not doing two factor at all. And I, I still think on. it's considered a second factor. <clears throat> I, I mean, opinion, if you're going to if you can use SMS, Tyler, to your point, it doesn't uh, exclude you from using a good password. Right. Or, or no. it also doesn't uh, excuse you from using the same password for all of your services. Like those are still <laughs> good things to do. You have that second factor there, even if it's SMS for an additional mm -hmm. layer of protection. But also keep in mind the different ways that it's used is or how is SMS used if you want to reset your password. It shouldn't be the only thing possession of your phone necessarily maybe shouldn't be the thing that allows you to just reset your password i think that's the kind of weaker thing for sms to be able to you know protect you against or it's weaker in protecting you against that i think if you run under the assumption that if an attacker has my password and there's sms make them go through the steps of finding your password somewhere hope that it was unique so if they got the linkedin breach which by the way darknet diaries did a great podcast on the linkedin breach if they got your password, make sure it was only for LinkedIn. <laughs> and if your LinkedIn account had a second factor, like you're good even if LinkedIn leaks their whole database with password hashes that aren't salted because like that happened in 2011. Yeah, that did happen. yep. so. And then they still got to get your user ID as a way to get to your phone. I mean, not that any, all of those things are doable, right. but it's about how fat of a vector is it, like Tyler right. said. So yep. and, Also, but now let's talk about this attack for a little yeah. bit. This was a Sakari is a service that allows you to send out these text messages and you enter your phone kind of like validating that it's you, right. but then they're able to receive your text messages. Right. Yeah. So effectively what yeah. they're doing, they're a service that is becoming your SMS, your text provider. Oh. Proxy. Proxy. SMS I proxy. see. Excellent. It's an SMS right. proxy. That's what you're signing up for. And yes. they're just... And they, and they, but they, hold on, they don't send you a text message to validate uh, nope. that you have the no, phone. No, 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 no. They you you uh, they have that's they, their fault. They first. have a little thing on their site that says, "Yes, I'm the registered owner of this phone number, and I and I have the rights and I have permission to do this." Aff How affidavit do of uh, affidavit of um, attestation, attestation, attestation. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, hold on, uh, can't the providers do something about that? Like, how do they get the they messages should, from the provider? Don't. That was my question. Like, why can't the providers do something? To shut these services oh. down, like the providers should have an maybe an attestation that says because that level of SIM access to your your phone 
uh, facilitates you being able to do all these kind of things that people actually do want to do, which mm -hmm. is being able to consolidate or generate messages like Hootsuite and all oh, those kind I of see. things. So the providers don't want to do away with this because lots of people mm -hmm. use these kind of services to yep. to push out, okay, you know, like a sense. massive and, blast. And, but why can't and, they require? And they, and, they, like, and they said that they're they're legit. Like they checked the box saying right. that, that they were, that they the were permitted This is really my phone number. Yep. But they almost need a two factor for the two factor. <laughs> yeah, all they need to do, it's really easy. Send the person a text message with a code and say, send me this code to verify that that's your number. Exactly. It's a recursive. And, 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 that was, and that was very much one of the things that uh, right? Lucky225 said was one yeah. of the possible solutions. That's for, a great solution. Problem. Yeah. Yep. But there's so, other companies, like there's a ton of companies. A, yeah, yeah. This so, isn't the only one. He just, right. They just picked this one, but there's everybody's yep. using this as a mechanism. So that just happened to be the one that Lucky225 picked yeah, to, to do this. Yeah. So can you just but go you register your own number with all of these services? So it's already registered. So if someone else tries to do it, it's almost like having well, you got to pay for it. You got to pay yeah. for it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you look at the back end of S7, you look at the back end of cellular and and even like SIP traffic and the way that those back end networks, these have been in play and design from long, long before we were thinking about the security of this stuff. And you start to talk about how we have to be cross carrier <clears throat> compatible, how we have to be able to port numbers, uh, how numbers carry over between phones and SIMs. Like these systems are not designed with that level of operability or scrutiny from the provider's level at least yet yeah like why if if someone if someone wants to port a number for example they have to know your pin code as one of the pieces of information but if you have blocked anyone can sign up for this service and this service then can receive your text messages doesn't these services have to register with the provider and go hey for that number I want to receive all of its text messages and what they have a link to the back end that the providers just let them do that? Yep. The They register with the providers with the understanding that they're going to have customers. They don't know which customers and so they get a blanket kind of oh, make yep. sure you validate. Interesting. Yep. Oh, it's like it's that's like ugly. It, it's like you that's get gross. it's like you get a license uh, in the state to uh, serve alcohol. And you're at, at, at a restaurant and the restaurant is the one that is the one that is supposed to be checking the IDs, right? Not the provide, not the liquor delivery folks in the state to come in and check every ID to make sure that every drink you're serving is being served to someone over the age of 21. Mm. It's your responsibility to check. And well, some restaurants don't check very well. It's a lot of trust to give to these third-party providers. It is, especially from SMS. You start to think mm. about like backup codes. Like I've, I've recently spent a painstaking amount of time trying to recover many accounts that were two-factored and did not have with that like, USB thumb drive with the, big, the Bitcoin on yes, it. Yes, the one with the Bitcoin on it. <laughs> <laughs> we and, have to bring uh, that up every show. We're just gonna rub some salt in the wound it's every like, week. Just drive it in it a little keeps deeper. Going up too. It just well, I mean. Up. The problem is, is that he can't do that authentication with the drive with the Bitcoin on it because he can't find it. Right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but the two-factor, like SMS, like that's a great validation. If there's no other means and the company has validated your phone prior, it is. I think it requires some extra steps, and I'm happy for some of these companies that are taking the extra measures to have a call, validate some information, whether it's a state photo ID, you know, whatever it is in order to recover. It makes me wonder how they're recovering if, you know, my authentication is tied to a 
key or token or seed, but you know that's besides the point. I'm gaining access back to my accounts with some addi- additional scrutiny, and I think that's something that you have to judge your threat profile and understand which accounts are critical that you need to turn off SMS recovery. You need to make mm. sure that those are you know token only or an app only or whether they're push or not. Like we've abused push accounts, uh, two-factor push all the time. Like you, you sit and hit. Uh, push accounts, you know, a hundred times. I guarantee your users going to finally hit yeah, approve because they don't know say what's yes. going on. <laughs> mm. They will. <laughs> yeah, they will. I mean, I've done the same thing. I mean, Tyler's exactly right. It's just like you just keep hammering them, and they're like, "Oh, look, fuck it, I give up." <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then yeah. it goes away, and they're like, "See, it was just a glitch. Right. No yeah. harm, no foul." <laughs> so yeah, I think this is a this is a good example of like. Picking your threat profile, picking your security to match the level of security that is necessary for what you're trying to secure, and ensuring that the general public, like this is obviously something that is a higher level issue with the providers and SMS uh, proxying or, or gateways. So that does need to be addressed. But would you just have to, like, it's kind of the same thing when you start to look at Macs, right? Like they have. Uh, they have their their iMessage on their computer, and if two-factor set up to do iMessage, like I can see your two-factor come in, grab a screen capture, and now it's just authenticated, and I didn't have your phone, and that's supposed to be a secure method of wait, you know two-factor. Right? My next question is: if we're on Signal and you use Signal to send me a message, can they they can't decrypt that, can they? If it's sent via Signal, not. Overlay it. Well, over, so signal using SMS is is a little bit different though, right? right? Because you're still using SMS. If you're doing signal to signal, it's end-to-end encryption, and you're right. not using your technically your phone number. Right. But your phone number, if you're using signal, uh, in order for it to hit the phone number, it still has to hit the the S7 backend network. Yeah, and but therefore like it is SMS. on on your phone, Tyler, and on my phone, we communicate via signal, and the button's blue. Therefore, it's going to use the signal's encryption protocol. And even if someone's intercepting either my number or your number, they're not going to see the clear text message. They only see the clear text message if they have my signal client or your signal but that's client. That's not that's not SMS. Yeah. Like if you send a, if you sent me an SMS from your phone number to my phone number via SMS. Right. So if it's gray, if it's the gray button in Signal, it's SMS. Right. If it's blue, like we're good. It's not actually blue going is, over. Blue SMS. is going through yeah. their server and being encrypted, as for the way I understand it. Oh, so, so it's not actually going. It's through. not an SMS message. I gotcha. SMS still traverses the S7. It has to traverse the the gotcha. backend provider S7 network. So then, why can't you use Signal if you just have Wi-Fi? Because uh, Signal's not tied to your phone for SMS, right? Like if these companies are using SMS proxying, and most of the time the companies that are doing two-factor authentication via phone are sending through an SMS gateway on yeah, their back end yeah, yeah. API, that's going to hit the phone networks mm-hmm. and come down and drop in via SMS. Yeah. I mean, you can use Signal just data to data if you want, but it's got to be to somebody on the other end that is uh, That is sending. also Signal. Yeah. It can't be an SMS, right? It's point so, to point. I think Moxie, point but I think Moxie did say he was working on a way to have Signal be completely autonomous from your cell number. Yeah, and that's what needs to happen ultimately. Yes, um, but that still wouldn't solve the fact that the provider is going to utilize right. a cell phone cell phone number, right? So we're still kind of 
I don't know the cell phone number, and that that's that brings back another point. Like, what about old cell phone numbers that get rolled? Like, you do burner numbers, or like you, you'd not believe the kind of stuff that I I get from the burner app uh, coming in on numbers that are just ro- rotated through, right? Like, there's all kinds yeah. of stuff that comes in. So uh, there's there is a problem with this mechanism, but I, th- I think we still need to look at it as a step in the right direction for the general public to get used to having a second factor, having a number to type in after they log in with a password. Like this was a step in the right direction, but we do need to start to look at maturing further. Mm. Well, we need we need to get everybody used to using an actual dedicated app for the second factor. Is what we're where we need to go. Um, Which is, you know, I still think is hard. Like, I still think having two-factor right? is is there, right? Like, I can't see my grandma actually installing an app to then do two-factor, but she's used to her bank sending her a text message that she then has to type in after she signs into her her bank app. Like, I, I, I just don't know if we'll leap, ever make though. that leap. <clears throat> well, and let alone a physical token. Yeah, I, I, I physical token's not going to work, but I don't think it's that much of a leap to take somebody to an app. Uh, especially when there are lots of examples of shared apps, uh, you know, like like Duo, like Google Authenticator, like you know, there's many of them um, that that quite happily play in this space. Uh, I don't think it's that much to ask uh, for people mm-hmm. to go that that direction. Maybe training, like if everybody on Facebook or Snapchat having to use a regular app had to use one of those apps as part of just the platform, I think that would be a push in the right direction, and that would get them used to. Uh, adopting something like that. Yeah, yeah, it would have to be one of the really large players that pushed them in that direction. I, I agree. Facebook actually supports the uh, uh, YubiKey. <clears throat> yeah, it does. Awesome. I actually had, mm, had that's one. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I used YubiKey with that and with Google and all kinds of stuff. So, and that's not that hard. I actually had it set up for a couple of people that weren't very astute. Yeah. Uh, on their bank accounts because I was worried about it, and and I, I had that set up for my dad because. I was really worried about that. And, yes, and but you know, he, and he was not. He was had you know tech block kind of thing, and I was just like, look, all you gotta do is just touch this, and you yeah. know, and, that, yeah, and that's yeah, it. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it actually worked for him. It took a few tries to get him up going on it, but I was so much better, and His I felt new, so much better about it. Newfangled things make me feel old sometimes. Like I'm still trying trying to figure out what a what do they call it a, a nif, nifty nif, NFT NFT. Is it, what, but there's nifty. another. Nifty? Do they nifty. call it a nifty? It's a nifty. A nifty. Is that right? that salt shaker porn you were talking about? No, no. It's not, I mean, that's actually. There's so much money happening in this stupid nifty thing where you're like you're you're basically getting a hash validator, blockchain validated, like digital image? rights to digital. something original. Yep. It's, it's so that it's could be an image or. It like just, a tweet, it, just right? it, like it means you audio, own it. A tweet. So it's like a hash of something that says that it, because it's digital. So if Banksy was to make a digital picture, and everybody could just copy it, and so it's uh, this has a digital signature that does well, two things, right? Validates that image is that image, but also validates on the owner. Yes, yes. And okay. so the the example that I saw the analogy for Nifties was was that like if you go to the Louvre and you look at the Mona Lisa and you you know cheat and you take a picture of it, yep. you have a picture of the Mona Lisa. You don't have the Mona Lisa, right? So the the the, the blockchain hash is actually in saying that you own, own. the Mona Lisa, or, right. you know, the digital version of so it. So you can own something digital just like you would own something in the physical world. Yeah, and so then it comes down to this kind of art versus reality sort of thing. It's like is is looking at a poster of the Mona Lisa sufficient for you, right? Or do you just have to say I own it? By God, it's mine. <laughs> you know, I don't care if everybody else can see it too, but it's like this is. Can mine. there only be one owner? Yes, is that it's, the way it's like the hash. Uh, yeah. No. Well, 
No. No? So that no. was uh, interesting. Uh, I had a conversation with Steve Walbro, who's the author of uh, Sands uh, 554, the uh, 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 smart contracts and uh, crypto um, stuff they uh, course. On, they do. On it, what now? On uh, smart contracts, it's, effectively blockchain. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which yeah. Nifty, yeah, yeah, I guess which, you could call it a smart contract. Uh, which yeah, nifties yeah. are covered uh, uh, in the uh, course. Uh, yeah, it's and, a blockchain technology. And, and right? yeah. I, I was I was asking about some of the stuff, mm. and um, it's it's interesting because the conversation went like this today: was I'm like, well, all this art stuff. Like, if I make a picture and um, or, or someone has a picture that's been niftied. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's the is right that a word. Verb? Is it a it, verb? It is now. It is, it is um, now. Can I take a copy of that and then can, or if I go to the some web page and there's a picture on it, and I take it. Can I take it and nifty it and then sell it? Mm. But I can prove that it's the original because I just stole some random How image off of a web page. And he, would, I, I didn't get a direct answer on that. Mm. But the part that he did, I did get was that um, uh, Steve is also an artist and he has an album that he has released mm-hmm. uh, via Nifty. I'm like, oh, okay, tell me how that works. Mm. Like, so you can prove it and then you can sell one copy. A- and he says, no, there's a whole bunch of other different models that you can do in that he can sell the rights, he can sell the Nifty Mm-hmm. And if someone else chooses to sell it built within the smart contract, if someone else chooses to sell it, he automatically gets 12% of the... Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's like a, there's a, royalty, a currency there's, built into, There's royalties yeah. involved. And I'm like... Well, yeah. Didn't we already do this with like the like the DMCA stuff and uh, yeah. what what the hell is the Blu-ray and like all the audio stuff that we did? DC, this, uh, DC, so you're thinking of dig, digital rights management. Um, but... But you know, I DRM, think yeah. I think yeah. it is a really good application of blockchain. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, yeah, I, I, I love what's evolving here. I think it's uh, it's the right move, frankly, uh, for for a lot of these things. And the digital art stuff in particular is, that's come forward with blockchain signature, I think, is is fantastic. Um, the, so the, the problem kind of is that uh, with like the crazy stuff that's going on with all of these big art stuff um there's clearly something amiss like why would you pay 70 million dollars for a collection of for a collection of digital images i mean art's always like that people people have been doing that forever i mean it's like people like remember that banksy painting and like when they had it up for auction like during the auction it actually like shredded itself And and then people paid outrageous amounts of money for the shredded image. It's just because you want to show everybody you can do it. You want to own it. You want it to be yours. So I think that's like this Beeple thing with the cat meme or whatever that cat thing is called. Well, the people are stealing them too. So Nifty Gateway is a marketplace where you can buy, sell, and display digital items. And people basically had their accounts hacked into. And Nifty Gateway was like... Uh, no, it just enabled two-factor. Back to our previous conversation. <laughs> it should be good. And people are like, I did have two-factor enabled, but my, my stuff still got stolen. I wonder how that happened. Mm. I, 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 let me guess. SMS. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I was going to say, it's like the, we just wrote on the first story of the night, told yep. you how to steal there it. Now we're going to talk about wow. what you want to steal. What did the first tweet go for by Jack Dorsey? I don't know. It was like uh, some crazy amount of money. There's so much money laundering written all over this stuff that it's it's, oh, it's crazy. Yeah. 
it's crazy. And sorry for plugging Steve's uh, Steve's no, uh, class. No, that's fine. Uh, the only no, reason I was uh, and the, and the only and reason I, was, I had any of that is because uh, Steve is one of the new authors uh, with James and I on yeah. the, the IoT course. Yeah. So, oh, I was uh, intrigued that you said there was a whole sweet. class on yeah yep. cryptocurrency or blockchain more uh, specifically and smart contract. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And they call it smart contract. contract. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, can, it's a, so can you can you start mining those blockchains and like Ooh. Then forcing. Yeah. That's a great question. Oh. I well, I mean, you can't buy the new NVIDIA cards anyway, so it's kind of a good point. So. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to mine anything. <laughs> you're not going to mine anything. That and, night. Oh, and NVIDIA puts stuff in those cards so that you can't mine cryptocurrency which as we were talking about on the way out of the show last week yeah somebody's already had no, there's that. a beta driver that will get around that yep. Dude, so, it was yeah. like an open it so was like they invited it was like, it was like an announcement yeah. to go hey we put this like roadblock in place and we just want to see how much time it takes before someone uh-huh. either plows through it or goes around it <laughs> yeah so six months of development Callen, work and six on. million Callen dollars and yeah, because it's, you know, there's a giant bag of money on the other side of this roadblock. So that's just inviting someone to go past the roadblock pretty exactly. much. Yeah. Yeah. And there's yeah. a yeah. monetary incentive yes. yeah. to do this. Yeah, yeah, a bag so of money absolutely. Well, He's got a comment in there somewhere, I think. I was going to say, was it bring it or because they asked for it? Come on. Right. <laughs> I think it, so. <laughs> that might have been a little bit of both because I yeah. heard something that along the lines of like NVIDIA ended up hacking it themselves. No, and the beta, they put out a beta driver that actually let you get around yeah. it, and they were the ones that actually t- talked about how to get around it. I, there was an yeah, article. After, well, after there were two uh, researchers that broke it. Yeah. I mean, somebody <laughs> else broke it first, but then NVIDIA just yeah. basically said, okay, yeah. But there was a, an AMD Radeon card that supposedly does a better job of mining cryptocurrency. <laughs> so can you, can you go, go buy that one and not the new RT, RT, can you RTX buy that one? Can at you this, buy that one? At this point, I'll buy anything that's not sold out. <laughs> But or price gouged. That's that, but that's the tricky thing. Is the card I talked about last week or the week before? Right, I had bought for one hundred eighty dollars, and it was five hundred eighty-eight dollars yeah, for ridiculous. sale. It's, you'll you'll buy anything that's Sick. not sold out. I think I've got some like. Well, it's not price gouging, yeah. I mean, I think I've got some old like six-year-old cards that I was doing <laughs> Dogecoin mining on in the basement. Like, well, there you go. We'll fire those oh, babies up. We touched on yeah. cryptography a little bit. Uh, dawn of a new era cryptography called quantum cryptography this was an article that it attempted to explain quantum cryptography i'll be honest i i, I still don't uh, get I'll it. i need honest. to spend some more time with this article but <laughs> i also be, need someone like jeff yeah to read this article and tell me if it's actually worth spending more time with i'm not sure if you read this one jeff but it says I in the case of quantum cryptography Alice tries to send photons, which are in a specific direction to Bob. Bob places a filter in the middle, which is upward downward direction, so that the photon getting out of the filter are either in upward or downward direction only. Somehow from that, it derives the key and Bob's able to decrypt it. Is that, is that, is, again, is that worth spending more time to understand it? Jeff's reading story number three. Jeff, huh? <laughs> yeah, that was me, huh? What? Huh? I mean, it sounds like they're trying to describe the mechanics of how quant- quantum computing works. Yep. Which I I concede. <laughs> mm. It's uh, you know, it's got something to do with qubits, photons, uh, man. photons. Well, these uh, are, yeah, these Doug, are quantum photons. Doug, any. I don't know if you read this one or not. I mean, this is where they start to try to expand cryptography. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the sort of holy grail of, of getting to this, which makes you be able to create a much larger space for the hashes. And so essentially what they're doing with this is using 
Um, it's not a Schrod it's not a Schrodinger. It's, it's, no, it's, they it's, said it in the article. Actually. It's this experiment where you split photons and they follow one path or the other. It's got a weird thing, and they follow. Yep. It, it's called a multi-slit experiment or something like that. And yeah, no, wow. yeah. and and wow. basically the photon has to choose Heisenberg's one. uncertainty. There principle. There you go, Heisenberg's yeah. uncertainty principle. I and read it, that from the article, by the way. I'm not to, that smart. <laughs> and the photon has to choose one slit or yes. the other slit. Yep. And and even though you can see it on both slits, it's like it's weird. It's where you start getting into this stuff where it's like, hand yeah. me the bong, and we'll talk about this. Like, oh wow, man, it went through both slits, but it only really went through one because there's just one photon but it went through both sides and oh my god and and this is that quantum stuff that mm -hmm. they're starting to get into and by doing that you vastly increase the uh, essentially key space of the cryptography which means it's, it's it's really really tough to break now someday somebody will break it because mm -hmm. then you have a quantum computer and it'll yeah, break yeah, quantum yeah, yeah, cryptography. Yeah, but but yeah so that's essentially All what right. they're talking about so i can i can take a step let, let jeff have it now please do jeff. um and maybe I won't do any better than Doug just did, but uh, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Damning with Faint Praise Theater. <laughs> that came out wrong. Uh, Doug, you did an admirable job, and I was with you. <laughs> Sorry, um, Jeff just mad because Doug's smoking my cigars and not Jeff. And this now is this, is, this is the special shelf that says "Just for Jeff." <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so there, there's two types. There's two major types of encryption algorithm out in the world, uh, which we uh, affectionately call symmetric and asymmetric. And asymmetric you is you also known. Canada. You forgot Canada. Asymmetric, eh? It's symmetric. A. It's so symmetric, A. Sorry. It's symmetric, A. That would be a third, but... Uh, <laughs> We're trying to explain a complicated concept. <laughs> Shut up, Larry. <laughs> we just got a joke. Hey. So, uh, what quantum cryptography uh, is is promising to be able, what, what quantum computing is promising to be able to do, is to solve uh, public key cryptography, which involves a, a public and a private key. And and the way it works simplistically is these two keys get multiplied together to form a very large number and the whole strength of the cryptography is how hard it is to factor this very large number and get back to the actual uh, numbers which I believe are actually prime numbers uh, you know the, the unique ones very, that very are large, very large prime numbers very fact. large prime numbers so uh, quantum computed computing uh, not to begin to explain how it works, but it's magic. It's really fast, and it just solves the problem because of all the, uh, you know, all the capability of doing advanced fast computing with, with qubits. Um, it, it 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 makes that problem solvable. Now, the the traditional type of cryptography using one key, however, that's been generated using some sort of algorithm, applying a random key to your message, to your data stream, whatever it is that you're trying to protect, um, it it's solvable uh, eventually theoretically uh, because you can try all the combinations of of keys, um, and, and again, yeah, they they tend to be. They, just, just use the symmetric algorithm, right? Um, where 
where cryptography comes into play and and full disclosure there's very very few known attacks against all the famous actual cryptographic cryptographic algorithms that we know of in the computer world but you know throughout time uh you know manual crypto systems being the exception but machine cryptography which was what i which was what was in vogue when i was working for the government mm-hmm. many years ago um you know, but think Enigma machine. Uh, the 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 belief that Enigma was unsolvable was because they were using all sorts of machines and rotors and made the possibility of brute forcing it such a huge problem to do by hand. They figured nobody could ever f- try all the combinations uh, in their lifetime. Right. And, and, but also, you know, there the was in- there was no salt, right? Shut up. <laughs> No, I'm serious. Or oh, is that a serious question? <laughs> no, it was a serious question because it was okay. uh, because the as we said on the show before, right? The Germans put Heil Hitler after each uh, message, and cryptographically, that took the same basically uh, the space same of letters. Text. Yeah, same crypto uh, crypt, uh, well, encrypted text as it was plain text, right? I I apologize. Um, salting is something different, but 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 what you're pointing out is you know cryptographic attacks tend to be uh, exploiting, in that case, it's it was called known plaintext. Right. You know what the underlying plaintext is, and conveniently it was the same plaintext at the beginning of each message that they would send, mm-hmm. even though each message was sent with a unique key because the Enigma machine, mm-hmm. every time it generated a key character, the rotors turned. Mm-hmm. But one of the other weaknesses uh, of the Enigma machine, whether it had three rotors, is the the first one would click you know one time, and I think it had you know twenty six characters on it, the twenty six characters of the alphabet, and it would therefore one revolution was twenty six characters before the second one would click once. Mm. So that was you know once they figured that out, they it, it became a little bit deterministic, even you, even though you didn't know what the order of the letters were on the on the rotors mm-hmm. themselves. So uh, we're getting too into the weeds. Yeah, it's, it's really uh, um, deep. I like it though. Quantum, quantum cryptography <clears throat> is is breaking public key cryptography, which is what most of the internet is built on. Mm-hmm. All, all of our secure websites. Um, but the trick is the the handshake, the negotiation. Uh, to mm-hmm. to you know, all of our websites or most of our websites are secure these days. Um, the initial handshake is what's doing the passing of a public and private key to establish a session key, which converts over to the um, symmetric. Uh, uh, encryption. So the you know the actual encryption that's going on of your web pages is an in, is a symmetric algorithm because it's so much faster than uh, doing right. the public private right. pair. Right. So the public yeah, so and private key, key is key though is because issue, it's right? what starts it. So key exchange is the issue. So cryptographic attacks uh, um, are very often not going after the algorithm that itself. It's going after. Uh, uh, human errors or ten, you know, human tendencies. You you mentioned the the Heil Hitler uh, password cracking is probably another great example, mm-hmm. where you know, let's say you're using a twenty character password, uh, and so it's twenty to the however many characters on your keyboard that are the possibility of all the characters, huge number. Uh, 
But most people that are going to create a 20-character password that they want to try to remember are going to write down a phrase. And phrases use words. And don't quote me on the exact number, but, you know, even though there's millions of words in the English language, uh, statistically, we use, like, 80,000 words or something like that. So if you know that. Brute forcing or brute brute force guessing well it's it's not brute it's brute forcing if you try every character it's a yep. cryptographic attack if you try to uh you know instead of going after a character by character guess the words right right but the reason the other reason i bring this up is because the jack Ressider did a great job in he interviewed um he did two different episodes that kind of built upon each other he talked to folks and did a lot of research on how the LinkedIn breach occurred. Basically, their their passwords were hashed inside of the database. Uh, well, your passwords were hashed. Your LinkedIn accounts mm-hmm. passwords were hashed inside of a database. The database was being traded on the dark web. They had to work backwards right. to derive how that happened. The uh, Dutch, what is it? They call it like the old Dutch hacker group or something like that. Got a hold of the database and were uh, brute force guessing uh, the passwords mm-hmm. since they weren't salted. It means like if one person's password is password that looks like the same, it is the same hash in the database. Now you know all the other users whose passwords are password. They figured out uh, in that exercise uh, what some of the other passwords were. They then saw Donald Trump on the news and was like, hey, I wonder if we search this database for trump.com. <laughs> like whose passwords are in LinkedIn, figured out that one of those passwords was you're fired, then said, hey, I wonder if the Twitter account for Donald Trump was you're fired. And <laughs> like basically the way they describe it, I'm spoiling the episode. You should still go listen to it because it's fascinating. But like one of the guys was like, yeah, so I, I like tried it. And the other guys were like, wait, you didn't actually like try and log in with Trump's thing. He's like, yeah, like I, I kind of did. And they're like, all right. But like it asked them to like validate an email address. And then the story kind of goes on how they basically had to stop and say, look, we can't do the disclosure with like, hey, we kind of half got into the Twitter account because no one's going to believe us or show interest. We got to pull off the rest of the hack and then do the disclosure. And so the rest of the story kind of continues from there. I won't spoil it because you absolutely should go listen to it. Mm-hmm. I thought he, they uh, they well, did a great job and Jack did a great job putting those episodes together to, and tying them together. To your point, uh, Paul, what you're describing, what they were describing is is cryptanalysis. It's, it's trying to figure out how to break the code, break the message mm-hmm. by applying all sorts of tricks and, and, and looking for various weaknesses, not in the algorithm t- typically, but right, in the way right. the alg- algorithm has been implemented or, you know, correctly or incorrectly, or frankly, stealing the key. I mean, the U S uh, suffered major breaches in terms of the intelligence community back you know, throughout time, but, you know, sometime around when I was at NSA, so it would have been the 80s, there were some major uh, espionage cases surfaced mm-hmm. where, you know, people from NSA, people from CIA were essentially selling the keys to all of our great right. crypto systems. They they sold I it mean, to the Russians and, and the Russians could use the key and read all the messages. Very much like the mom and daughter hacker duo that mm-hmm. basically the i mean the way this plays out so uh they hacked their way to the homecoming crown so they rigged 
the election, fabricated votes so that her daughter mm-hmm. could become homecoming queen. But really, like the air quotes hack, because I was like, oh, well, that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Like there's a, a mom and daughter hacking duo. Like I'm intrigued for all kinds of reasons as to like how this all played out. <laughs> it, but it turns out like there wasn't, it's not really hacking. Like her mom worked at the school, had valid credentials to access the system. Similar to your story, Jeff, not at quite the scale, but shared mm-hmm. the password with the username and password with the daughter who would go in and like read people's grades and reports, rig the homecoming election uh, purportedly uh, and do all of those things and then brag about it to her friends like, oh, like, hey, I like you got an F in math. Like you must be really dumb. Ha ha ha. That's kind of how I envisioned it playing out but that was all because like (laughs) her mom and her daughter shared the account that her mom had access that's more insider threat insider than anything it is having to do with (laughs) and and if the daughter was really smart she would have been like so you got an f in math would you like to have an a yeah Mm -hmm. pay me five hundred dollars and you can have an a who cares about the damn homecoming queen crown because i just bought a maserati right but yeah yep and uh and and to this password is pencil and it was written down yeah yeah, Yeah. and and to that it's not a story in the wiki but there was one that came out on national news this week um about the the 50 something year old momish um that uh you know advanced her daughter's cheerleading career uh, by creating deep fakes mm. of three other members of the cheerleading squad <laughs> yep. showing that yep. they were drinking naked and um, you know hitting the vape pen and then sent them to like teachers and all that type of stuff right it's interesting oh, like is that man. is that fraud is that hacking is that well one i'm you know i'm impressed that how do you categorize the, that, that, that the mom knew how to and could create the deep fakes yeah. i'm also concerned that it's easy enough for someone of say for a 50 year old momish person to yeah do. yeah that's more slander than it digital slander is that oh, like yeah. a new thing i mean in, is in, it digital or otherwise it's still slander in this case though I, I think it's safe to say the law has not caught up with that yeah to mm-hmm. give it some but like in this case it's still a cfaa violation because it's unauthorized access which is i thought it was interesting to think about in that context that it's unauthorized access that doesn't necessarily mean it was hacking like it wasn't we got the uh, password no. database and we're doing brute force guessing yeah. or things we did as pen testers like basically unauthorized means like someone shared their password with someone and gained access to information in systems they did not have authorization to have access to i mean this is back down and more like the category of well, at least when i was in high school somebody puts up a poster that says britney's a slut yeah you oh, know, in Larry's I mean, example, yeah, that would so be more slander, slander defamation. This case, in the homecoming case, it is, I think, more unauthorized access to computer systems, which interesting how we always kind of think of that as more hacking mm-hmm. uh, uh, activities. But really, it's just like mom shared her password with daughter. and But like yeah. the list of charges against them. And they took this very seriously. Very seriously. Uh, where are the list of charges? Um, I was just looking for that. Yeah, so arrested uh, one count each offenses against uh, users of computers, computer systems, computer networks, and electronic devices, a third-degree felony, unlawful use of two-way communications device, also a third-degree felony, criminal use of personally identifiable information, yet another third-degree felony, and conspiracy to commit these offenses because they work together with each other. Mm-hmm. They racked up a first-degree <laughs> misdemeanor charge. <laughs> So, but so but to understand what's happening, though, uh, and I think this is true, uh, and, and quick 
quick plug for Security and Compliance Weekly. Uh, you know, we had Priya Chaudhary mm. on as our occasional co-host, and she happens to be a lawyer, and she schools us every time that she comes on on law. But we were talking about uh, the laws that applies to cybersecurity just this week. Episode, help me out, people whispering in my ears. 65, I think it was. I think it was 65. Um, yeah. um, you know, she was talking about how... 65. How Thank you. 65 it is. Um, the law, historically, before you got into cyber law, is always backwards looking. It's always based on you know precedents and somebody interpreting the law and applying it and making it stick, so to speak. And, and cyber law, because things are happening so quickly and mm. things are so different like what we're describing here i i will i would wager and we could we can check with priya should have her on this show sometime we should um that all these charges are being thrown at these people more or less to see what will stick because probably a case like this has never happened before so you know somebody's wrote somebody sat down and said well let, let's see what kind of sort of think might apply here and and let's charge him with it, and then let's let a, a judge and a jury figure it out. And, and and based on the outcome of that case, the next time it happens, there'll be precedent. And 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 you know, if they decided it's bad and they convict them, then from here on out, people will get convicted for that. Um, so it, it's tricky though. But the best analogy that I can think of, or the closest analogy I can think of, is the old. Uh, question of if you are you know walk up to somebody's house and the door is open and you walk inside, are you trespassing? It's kind of along those lines. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting if you start to read about what third degree felonies are compared to well, other. Well, really, I mean, all these. I have, like yeah. I have a student right now I'm working with who's doing her thesis and she's a law student and she's doing her thesis on these laws at the hmm. state level. And, you know, every state has different laws. All the laws are complicated. A lot of them haven't been tested in court. So like, like Jeff was saying, these things will become precedents as cases mm -hmm. are tried. And then the court will say yes or no to different charges. So it's a huge issue. And, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about this, I think, in the legal community getting ready to start. Right. So, you know, I, I have several lawyers that are working on this thesis with us as well to put together all these laws and try to sort of start seeing where they have commonality and where they vary. They probably could get charged in these cases under some of these cyber stalking and revenge porn. A lot of states now have cyber stalking and revenge porn laws that are pretty broad as well. So they may be able to charge them under those kind of statutes as well, but they typically are going to choose the statute that has the most penalty associated with it that they think they can get a conviction on. So that's where they sort of pick, you know, from the different rules. Uh, Lee, you and I had uh, a few stories in common. Um, yeah. One was the new Mirai, uh, re resurgence of Mirai. A new it's a resurgence. I don't know. A variant? I don't know if it's a it's variant. A variant. It's, a, it's a variant. An evolution or an. Uh, yeah, we can call it a variant. Yeah, a variant. They're so. calling it a variant, but, you know. It's, it's the Brazil variant. <laughs> right. The, the ZHTrap botnet, it basically. A, you know, it's going to, and it's targeting, um, what was it targeting? D-Link, Netgear, D-Link, Netgear, Sonicwall, and a bunch of IoT stuff. Well, the ZH trap was a, just that, it was a trap, right? Like the right. botnet people set up some uh, honeypots, to, but it was like the, the bad hacker set up the honeypots, and when stuff hit the honeypots, they, they went after the the 
bots that were attacking the honeypot right. and went after their C2 infrastructure. <laughs> right. It took over their C2 infrastructure to increase the size of their botnet. Is yeah. that what your story was about, Lee? Yeah, it was basically the same same thing, although it was focused on... The one I got was, was focused more on the, hey, it's back, and yeah. uh, also known as the H. And yours was... And it mentions that yours is going more straight into what they're going after. But yeah, it's the same that. Apparently, there were some... Uh, some new remote code execution exploits in the story. I don't know which number mine was, but uh, the part that I thought was interesting is they're going after uh, new targets with some new exploits and researchers could see like the new exploits going after these devices, mm -hmm. but couldn't figure out a corresponding vulnerability. So they're thinking <laughs> they're new vulnerabilities, zero day vulnerabilities and zero day exploits, but they're having to work uh -huh. backwards and figure it out. Right, because yeah, so some of them are going after zero days, and some of them are going after things that have been had patches for years. I, I remember that both both <laughs> mentioned zero days, and then that yours one yours talks about, hey, wait, there's been a patch out for some of this stuff for over a year. What the hell, guys? Yeah, that's um, that too. Darn it! Come on, guys. But uh, no, it was interesting. I'm just was I thought didn't didn't Mariah shut down like last fall or something? Well, it, it's a great point. They, like, they do shut these down, and then they just come back. And I thought, you know, this kind of, if you're going to bring back a botnet, what better way than to take over someone else's C2 infrastructure and introduce some new zero-day exploits into some existing, uh, you know, malware and botnet code uh, to, to kind of bring it back to life. Yeah. I mean, clearly, it's a fruitful endeavor to go after IoT devices and build a botnet. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they're used somebody, for quite a few things. A lot of wiggle room. Bag there. of tricks they had, Tyler, right? Yeah. And some of these guys they shut down and they uh after they shut down, they they release their source to to whatever others so then they can build on it from there and make something that fingerprints or doesn't fingerprint the same, but it's really a lot of the same code on the on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Saving a lot of I time. I think the, the infrastructure was fully confiscated and taken down by an effort of some working groups in Microsoft yeah. and other. Wasn't that major one of those multi multinational law enforcement mm -hmm. uh, cooperation things? <clears throat> yep. Microsoft's instrumental in taking some of those things down. Yeah, because oh, yeah. they're running on Azure and other platforms <laughs> that they control. Well, and so. most people run Windows, so if there's a botnet, yep. it's going to target Windows. So the less botnets that are targeting Windows and making Microsoft look bad, like, yeah. ah, that's clever. I, I, have, yep. I have no objection to Microsoft stepping up their game to, to get I these agree. things caught and shut down. I mean, what the heck? It's got to be done. You know, and, and the fact that they're sharing and they're creating tools that they're putting out, uh, putting out PowerShell scripts and stuff. Yeah, uh, just I mean, going back to last week's conversation on Exchange, they published a couple of tools just that are out there and free for people to use. Uh huh. Yep. The other one we had in common was hackers hide credit card data and compromised uh, stores in a JPEG file. So I was <laughs> think, a PCI thinking story. that's <laughs> Dego and PCI, right? Right, Jeff? Yeah, yeah not, it sounds new, it's, but. Well, it's it's not a new concept, but certainly an interesting application of, you know, how do you hide the goods so you can exfiltrate it? Yep. And and what better way than to just put it up on their website in a JPEG? That was kind of clever. Uh, I was trying to check our our uh, our archive 
you know, because it's all based on mage cart type of tax, uh, web, mm-hmm. website skimming is what they call it. And I was like, gee, have we ever talked about website skimming and mage cart on any of our episodes? And I did, you know, I just typed in mage cart. Sure. I'm sure we did. Episodes <laughs> like 575, 576 showed up. So if we yeah. have, it's been a while, like a couple years. I think we should dig uh, into dig into carting. Um, we should. It, it's it's kind of funny. My, my wife will go. We want to go. We want to go karting and use use the word karting, and what she means is like go ride like go karts or go to like a place. So I'm like, look, this family will not be involved in illegal or illicit credit card trade, and they all just kind of look at me. I'm like, you said karting. That's the term that refers to <laughs> trading and yeah, buying and selling right? credit cards and gear and devices. I'm like, are we going right. to use track one or track two data? Like, what are we getting from this karting uh, experience? And I kind of look at me like I have eight heads. Hey, Alexa, earmuffs. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to me, the cool thing about hiding the data in the JPEGs is it like they're really making it invisible that they're there because they're not doing the direct data exfil. And then they can come along later and pick up a JPEG and pull it out and look possibly like somebody who's just legitimately opening an image. It's not, mm-hmm. it's going to be a hot harder well, to find so, it. Well, like my so, thing was like, um, uh, you, so you're putting these images somewhere. You have to yeah. go get them. But are they like images that aren't part of your website? And how my brain went to like, well, how do I monitor what images are being downloaded from my website? And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, wait. Not that's- even just download. Like you can right click on an image, right? You save that out. It's yeah. the, these in this case are publicly posted images or public paths. Yes. Uh, so right. they can just well, retrieve them from anonymous so, sources. So my, so. my what question makes was, it did they try to obfuscate the data in any way? It was no, it in the metadata. It's, it's it's just written. I'm assuming it's in the metadata. I was yeah. trying to read. Uh, I want to scan script. the internet and look for these uh, JPEGs now and start looking at the metadata. Oh. Or are they stick? The, are they steganography? Well, yeah. I mean, the other part no. that right. I don't. It didn't. Didn't say. Rarely that clever that it would be actual steganography. I think they just figured out how it's to just tag meta- it. In metadata. Mm. Oh, yeah. it's in metadata. Um, okay. But lame. what's interesting about yeah, it is e-commerce sites very often, you know, are selling things and they're selling things based on a, you know, a catalog, let's say. And the catalog has pictures of what it of all right. the stuff that you want to buy. So it's very common for these types of e-commerce sites. Now usually they're in theory segmented out from the payment application mm-hmm. portion of things. But it's very common for these websites to have uh, connections to FTP servers. The bane of one of the banes of my existence because they're always pushing content out mm-hmm. uh you know uh i think i can say this my, my customer many years ago was 1-800-Flowers go look at their website sometime and see how many flower arrangements they offer especially on like valentine's day tons of and they're all they're yep. always pushing stuff out. i mean it's mm-hmm. multiple times a day they're pushing out lots and lots of images so you know, kudos for somebody you know, figuring out, hey, we could hide things in hide images. In the noise, yeah. Tons of images. Um, and, and ironically, they've probably, <laughs> you know, the, the bad guys have had to do that because, uh, because of PCI that actually does require you to filter outbound connections and, and control access outbound. Uh, you know, they, they, you know, 15 years ago when it was Alberto Gonzalez, they were dumping all the data into files and, and just leaving it there and then going, going and back picking and it up or it, they it, were pushing it out. But now, I mean, there's a lot of systems, Jeff, that, that look inside of files and look for credit card numbers. Yep. 
Yes. And so hiding it in the metadata of an image kind of sidesteps that that process. It's pretty smart. Yep. And I mean, kudos to you if you want to download every image on the internet and look through the metadata for credit card numbers. Hell, I, 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 what, I, what, I, what I had a hard enough time. Is how lame it is because uh, <clears throat> most file image formats, uh, JPEG, uh, PNG, uh, they consist of chunks of data that are well-defined. And, and it would be pretty easy to take a couple of bits of each chunk of data and encode your yeah. stuff mm -hmm. into... Steganography. Um, Steganography. Yeah, right. for the win. Yeah, and, and do, do some sort of stag. But, you know, to stick it in the metadata, it's like that, that, that's like script it's cheating crap. Yeah, yeah anyway. exactly. Yep. Uh, this, this is version 1.0, Draw. This is, the this first is why we... This is why we, we, we scoff when they call these uh, attacks sophisticated. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. And it also is a topic that's been interesting to me lately. Uh, Scrape, so scraping, leave it at that. scraping all the we, images on the internet. Like, Jesus. I had a hard enough time just doing it from one website for Twitter picture sharing back in the day. Speaking but, of which, do any of you guys have a have a card reader? What kind of card reader? Yeah. Chuck uh, yeah, 1, Chuck yeah, 2, reader yeah. writer. You got writer, writer, yeah, we have yeah. writer, writer, yeah. and a reader, yeah. maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, just, I, just Bob, need I mean, reader. our friend Bob has a writer, and a yeah, reader. or Tyler will talk off reader. air momentarily. We we may have there may be access to one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just need to, I need to have somebody uh, swipe a card and tell me what they're looking at. Uh, I'll oh, talk about it off air. Just swipe a card. I oh yeah, readers are get readers yeah. anywhere. I just don't happen to have one. Get straight. Somebody would. Writers, you got to go to one eight hundred Carter's Market. I'll get it right <laughs> after I get that. You go to one eight hundred Flowers. It's one eight hundred Carter's on my, Market. It's on my wish list. Right after a printer. <laughs> <laughs> right after a printer. <laughs> Which I don't need now, but because I, I figured out I can scan right onto a USB stick. It's a little bit more painful, but uh, it saves me from having to go out and get a new printer. That's what she said. Because I'm you, cheap. You could probably also fax yourself a copy. Yeah, if it was connected to a phone line, I could. But yes, anyway, move on. Oh, let me throw out a story. Let's shift yeah. gears completely. Um, I just I just happened to hear this this morning on the news, and since you guys are kind of close to Boston, I thought you guys would appreciate it. It's just a, a such a touching story. My story. I think it's number one. Yeah. Wherever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, your story uh, number two is not Bitcoin. is not touching the disaster of the half demon attack on Microsoft Exchange. No, 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 not that one. Definitely not that one. <laughs> story no, number it's two. The, it's the Dick Hoyt story. No, Dick Hoyt, um, who yeah, I used to spend a lot of time in the Boston area with uh, a prior customer. Um, I mean, I spent months in the Boston area over the span of five or six years, uh, and so I was up on many occasions during the time of the Boston Marathon. I was actually up there the 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 year that the bombing happened. But you know, so I heard about this guy probably ten or ten or fifteen years ago, Dick Hoyt. If you're ever down on your luck, if you're ever feeling like you need some inspiration, this guy not only did marathons and uh, Ironman competition competitions, he pushed his pushed his quadriplegic son on a wheelchair. Or, to do or, or pulled him in yeah. a boat or while well, he swam. Yeah. And the yeah, uh, um, the I, first race that they ever ran, um, folks fully expected him. Uh, it was the Boston Marathon. Fully expected him to mm -hmm. go down the first block uh, and yep. turn around and, and be done. No, he finished the entire goddamn thing and finished second to second last. Second to last. Yep. Not they last. Second to last. Yep. 
Yeah, they were interviewing his son this morning. So, I mean, he, he passed away. I think the last last Mar- Boston Marathon he did was a year or two after the bombing. And uh, and, and, he, and my yeah. bad, the first one was not a the Boston Marathon. It was a five-mile race. But That's right. That's right. Oh, oh and, but, and, and uh, by the way, just an little amazing tangent, story. little tangent on that story. If you ever have the pleasure to take a tour of the J. Edgar Hoover FBI building in D.C., the boat is there. Yes. Hmm. Oh, cool. Yes. The boat yeah, that I'm they just, shot up. Yeah, if you I ever need that. motivation and and Joff isn't available because he's been killing it working out this year, uh, getting in shape and getting his guns in order, uh, just just read up a, 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 on Dick Hoyt. Dick Hoyt. Amazing I, you story. Know, it's, it's actually funny you mentioned that also, Jeff, because the Dick Hoyt story came up in my coached workout group just this past week. Hmm. So uh, interesting oh how things converge so it makes me feel like i should go walk around the block or something mm. for starters it's a good <laughs> good i'm just gonna set us, settle for getting out of my chair so or at least walk <laughs> to the cabin jeff and have a cigar while you're yeah. down that's right that's right yep exercise your lungs a little bit let's talk about software grades why not mm. so d, the white house is contemplating d, d minus <laughs> the, way, yeah. the White House is contemplating the use of cybersecurity ratings and standards for U.S. software, a move akin to how New York City grades restaurants uh, on sanitation or Singapore labels Internet of Things devices. I mean, there's challenges here. The rating has to be based on something that can be measured because you can measure things like the number of germs and bacteria in a kitchen like using mm-hmm. and like, the number of rat feces and right because yep. people like, sleeping under the sink one of my favorite right? restaurants that's I like always science that, right like there is a person oh, sleeping a person under the sink sleeping under the sink there is yep. however many particles of bacteria on, yeah, on, on the this, person right. and the sink yes. and the food and and you know yeah but how do you measure what? whether or not software is secure like i think if there was a scientific an accurate way to do this we would be having be doing this it, conversation yeah. right now at, at all like there's uh software changes it has multiple components that change it behaves differently in different environments it can be manipulated on the client and the server like authentication yeah. <clears throat> is mm-hmm. a huge issue like it's just not the same it, thing it need- as you walk into a restaurant and there's like an a minus mm-hmm. on the wall and you're like ah it's not an a plus but like it's it's good enough right it, it, like, it, it doesn't it, exist for software like like what's the What's the grade? It's like, I, I don't know. Like, does it have cross-site scripting? Like, but, that's well, no, one it ha- thing. no, it has a grade, but that was tested three versions ago and we haven't done our random test yet. Yeah. And like, well, like I, random- I mean, I guess a kitchen uh, is the same way. Like, oh, inspector's coming. We better like, well, what, yeah, what, but the guy's not sleep. sleeping here tonight. Yeah, kick him out. Sleep. Kick the guy into the sink yeah, out. But st- but also so. they do random inspections. And yes. You're, you're supposed but, to but have I mean, a certain level of hygiene. But you could come up with a set of things that are about software that yeah. just like threat vectors and you say does this software you know have two-factor authentication does this software have and so you can come up i mean yeah it's not scientific but you can start sort of scoring it based on criteria that exist it's challenging and, and like you said if, if it was easy it would already be done but i mean i do think they can come up with things where it says well this is all self-contained it can't be modified does it have root passwords hard-coded into it and things like that so there are things where you could give it you know check marks and minus marks just like you do the restaurant but it's it they're going to have to sit down and come up with what all those things are so that's like a nist problem and they're going to sit down and well, say, okay, here's this giant checklist. And we say, how many check marks did yeah. you get? And I guess, you know, my, my fear is you don't know the true 
security integrity of a web application, for example, until like you've got Burp Suite as a proxy and you're looking at, for example, like what code's loaded in my browser that I can control versus what's coming on the server side. Because, yeah, you can you can do a scan and provide grades and detect vulnerabilities and you can look at source code. But I think a huge part of web application security, which is really kind of telling for me in the last couple of like web apps that I looked at was I'm not even attacking like the app in a traditional sense. Like I'm not throwing packets at it or exploits or SQL injection. I'm just like I'm looking at the requests and responses and if it's loaded in my browser, I get to determine whether or not that's loaded in the browser. Like, I, I love the checkbox in Burp that's like, hey, basically take out any JavaScript or HTML that's doing field level validation. And by the way, if there's a hidden field, like show that to me. I think you're overthinking it, though. I, I logic think errors. Logic uh, errors are huge, but that's huge. But I think you're overthinking that's it. That's the I, difference between getting a vaccine and not, is what I'm but saying. But I think though. they're going to look at this at the gross level. So it's like, do you do like ridiculous things? Like, you know, it has no password and, you know, you can, anybody can use it anonymously versus it, you know, requires a login, requires two factor. I think mm -hmm. you're getting, you know, they're not, there's no way they're going to be able to get down to that level because it changes and it's just, it's going to be impossible to measure. So I think it's going to end up being this sort of gross measurement of like, not like the they tested for bacteria on the workplace. They're going to walk in and go, was there a guy sleeping under the sink? Mm -hmm. And if there's a guy sleeping under the sink, they go, that's not so great. Yeah, there's levels and then there's a levels. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're, you're, I'm thinking you're going to have to have what amounts to a, a configure, a, an approved config or validated configuration. You'll get the A if you, you've installed it with this, this way, with this configuration, kind of like uh, a standard OS configuration <clears throat> that you can validate. And then how often do you have to go update it and make sure you're still an mm -hmm. A? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll like score it over time stuff. even and say how many times was it patched in the last six months or something like that. But yeah. I think it'll stay at that kind of like macro level and they probably and, won't drill and, down. And then, you know, we, you know, we think about the IoT stuff and, you know, part of the thing that I've fallen into over the number of years is that, you know, we think about this IoT stuff with running a stripped down version of Linux. And that's not always the case. I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of different devices running some real-time operating system like paul you and i favorite during the time during back in the day was qnx mm -hmm. like there's still tons of these devices running rtos and I, testing those is a different challenge altogether yeah and a lot of that testing larry as you and i and many of us know <coughs> comes down to the authentication and mm -hmm. if, if we could only have a standard for how we authenticate to even web applications and IoT devices, or how you implement a registration system. Like there could be standards, like never do validation within JavaScript in the browser because that's that's out of your control now. Yep. You know, always have strong authentication and have password recovery be at a certain level and have that be not something that developer needs to worry about have to be something you can just like go buy and, and plug in bot detection i think should be the same thing have easy pluggable bot detection that brings that application up to a certain standard what we have today everyone gets to do whatever the heck they want in every single scenario no matter if i'm registering if i'm ordering my dinner registering for a vaccine or doing banking it's up to whomever to determine what level of security gets put in place in all those areas uh -huh. that's where i can see legislation but also assistance for places like state and municipal governments 
which often have to operate this software to serve the community to register your car, to pay your taxes, to do all of the things that every municipality has to do that's at a significant disadvantage today. They're not, you know, a, a company that is taking on funding or doing business with companies that are taking on millions of dollars of funding. They're a municipality that's operating with a very small, if non-existent budget for technology. And I, I, I think we, I, so I do, I think we do need a software grade, and, but also coming with that is some help and assistance for those to get certain organizations like municipalities up to a, a certain level. Well, I, I think you're going to need another piece, though. I think, yeah, I think having better assurance about what the software it is you're requiring and, 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 and a secure way to configure it is important. But I think you're going to still have to have uh, detection for malfeasance. You're going to have, because there's things can go wrong before the grade is updated or the configuration is, op, is, is changed because, you know, Say they were acquired by somebody who doesn't have our best interest at heart, or something else. Um, you you got to have a, 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 a an additional level there to watch out for what's going on that shouldn't be. There's also well, it's also the issue Lee, of how, how long do we require that <clears throat> software that's deployed meet that standard? I think it certainly plays into to OT as well. How long mm -hmm. does a device that's deployed in the field have to be maintained to a certain standard? As evidenced by my story number 13, Schneider Electric's power. Where did Tyler go? Tyler. Okay. We'll get to that one next. Maybe take a different direction as Tyler comes back because I wanted to get his take on that oh, one. Yeah. 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 So he might have gone to grab his card reader. I was pivoting the story. Uh, my story number 13, Schneider Electric's PowerLogic Ion PM smart meter uh, used by consumers in their homes. Uh, interesting yeah. enough, we just got these in road. Uh, not, maybe not this particular device. I haven't actually looked. Um, they deploy the meters to monitor and, of course, bill their customers for services used by industrial uh, companies and data centers. Uh, had some pretty heinous vulnerabilities. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, basically, I, it looked like a logic error to me. I mean, it was what happens is that it, it uses a proprietary protocol. So with it, no authentication. No. As it, is the, lot, the case oftentimes right. in OT. So authentication just gets in the way. They're just sending yeah. this stuff over this proprietary thing that's called ION or something like that. And what happens is when they evaluate the, the packet, um, there's two tests that go on. So there's a test to see if the packet is valid, and there's a test to see if you should put it on the stack. And even when it got an error for the packet being malformed, it still pushed the, the packet up onto the stack. So it created a situation where malformed traffic could get into the stack, which <coughs> ended up one of those ended up being a remote code execution yep. problem. And the other one was just a denial of service. So it depended on how the stack yep. was handling these malformed packets. And in one case, it was actually they were able to link. I, I, I'm presuming it didn't, it didn't actually go into the exactly details, how they yeah. did it. But I'm presuming, again, it's linking those you know those stack instructions together so that you can pull in uh, whatever you want and then the other case it just it just fried it so it reboots and, and starts over so it, it's pretty bad I mean I mean these are like you know IIOT devices and things like that so well and smart meters are interesting yeah, these, too because I mean, they need to communicate right Ty I mean Tyler and Larry mm -hmm. they I do I don't want to give away too much but 
if you were to look at one of those devices, you would see that it has to communicate that data back from a person's home mm-hmm. to yes. some regional point, maybe not a central point, right? But a collection center. Mm-hmm. And how do you transmit that data, but do it securely, but also do it so that it's reliable mm-hmm. as well? There's a number of ways you can but do But you that. said securable, right? Like securable. Right. There's a patch. <laughs> yep. May not happen. Securable, right? Yep. I mean, I, I don't necessarily and, and, see the wire from my smart meter that, oh, that goes no. somewhere. It, exactly. Well, but no, you do. Because power line. the power line. Because mm. yeah. you can do Ethernet over power line. Gotcha. You, can, okay. you can do that type of stuff. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's also all sorts of other methods too. The, the trick really becomes doing that securely. Mm. Because from something like your power meter, your car, any of these things, um, doing so securely today may be possible. The problem is, is that the lead time for development and then push to market for automobiles, smart meter solutions. And getting three, those installed. Three, three to five years yep. lead time before the first At one least. even gets installed. It may be secure the day that it's rolled out, but you think about well, from the, the, the power perspective, uh, the power meter is expected to live on someone's home for 30 years. Yep. Your automobile is going to be potentially up and running for how long? Maybe 20 years? 15 years? Yeah. Mm. That technology that was secure the day that it was installed after five years is likely not secure anymore. Correct. And a lot of these rely on like the real time. The They have to have, in this case, I don't see some of the need, but a lot of these... ICS devices or real-time operating systems are relying on the fact that they need to have accurate measurements, calculate, change mm-hmm. uh, real hardware on an instant in order to, you know, calculate change of phase, uh, send a send a voltage or current or amperage down the line or up uh, up or down something, mm-hmm. right? Something physical, and so there's not a lot of room for heavy encryption to be decrypted. Mm-hmm taken apart on like low-end devices as well as the speed, time, and reliability that has to happen. So again, like we think of encryption like why wouldn't they just put encryption on this? It doesn't actually work that way in a lot of ICS environments and there's there's mm-hmm. usually a decent reason. Like there are sometimes that, you know, they've been trying to develop these and make these more efficient, more easily available to process and decrypt and handle different protocols, yep. which is why you'll typically see a proprietary protocol on theirs because they've specifically designed a chip that does a specific function utilizing their protocol in a specific manner. And, you start to and, muck and, with and their and speed. Proprietary and is always secure. Yeah. And, so and it's speed. Why are we having a discussion? I, I think the other one that hits on that, uh, that Tyler, is you know we have this, quote, ter- the triad, triad of uh, CIA, mm. confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Um, and that's sort of what we've taken as gospel in you know the IT security community. Um, in OT networks, ICS networks, it's not in that order. And no, that, it's availability that, first because yeah. the power company has to collect the data to send me a bill. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the power has Even to be further, there. safety. Safety. Keep the lights on. Safety. Availability. Keep the lights availability on for that system to be able to know if it needs to shut down because there's a safety issue. Mm-hmm. That's the primary key, not this confidentiality business. And right, in many right. cases, the confidentiality takes away from the processing 
power needed to assure mm. availability. I would I would even say <clears throat> that the integrity isn't as important because what they'll do if there's a glitch, they'll just bill you again for the same amount from last month. Yep. <laughs> well, also, I think it's like uh, loss prevention in retail. Mm-hmm. You know, right. they may know that, sure, if I deploy a smart meter to Larry's house, yeah, Larry can certainly reverse engineer any IoT embedded device and, and cheat on his bill. But look at the risk equation there, right? Mm-hmm. Like first, someone has to have the right skills. Yep. Secondly, someone has to be unethical to want to lie about their bill. Yep. And the number of instances where that's going to happen, the probability is pretty low. So therefore, we can put a device in that maybe doesn't have that confidentiality, <coughs> right. doesn't because have some the, of those the, measures. Because the, the, the amount we're going to spend to implement that and the money we're going to lose right. for that one person out of a population is going to be minimal. And if that one person does build a device that they start distributing to their friends, we have enough data across this yes. huge swath that we can detect those anomalies yep. and then we can just go. You do the detection phase yep, yep. rather than a protection phase. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, and those, there are articles of that happen. I mean, I remember hearing from some folks, that, friends of ours that uh, in Puerto Rico that that exactly happened. Right. Yeah, I want to say 10 years ago, I started hearing about smart meter <clears throat> deployment and how they're deployed. Yep. And a couple of months ago, I got a smart meter. <laughs> to speaking to your point, Larry, of <laughs> it takes time to identify the right technology, yep. uh, develop it, get the the processes and the equipment in place, and then start deploying yep. it to. You have to deploy this to every home in yep. in, in the we, environment. We yeah. got, we we actually. So our house, when we built our new house, we got when they put the new meter on the new house, they we put got a new, a new smart, smart meter. meter. On. Yeah, yeah. And uh, our barn has a separate service, and uh, we actually just got one there uh, about six months or so yeah, eight well, months maybe ago mine was yeah and and i think in rhode island <clears throat> national grid i mean you could look go look that up yeah. is the provider for for rhode island and, and yep. a lot of new england right and i think they're just now getting to rolling those out to homes and well and and the other well the other one too i think ours was a little bit anomalous in that um <laughs> it was for our barn and we used about 12 dollars a month in electricity in our barn sure. for the workshop and so forth um and uh, we plugged our camper into the barn and the refrigerator and stuff. So now it's about $26 a month for mm-hmm. the, the energy draw there. But uh, about six years ago, I also made a mistake in that we had two bills for our energy consumption. Mm-hmm. And I accidentally paid the house payment to the barn mm-hmm. three consecutive months in a row, totaling almost $1,000. Mm-hmm. So I had a thousand dollar credit the uh, energy company for a meter that we were using at twelve dollars a month, um, and then all of a sudden it's like, holy crap, they're using energy! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, the meter's broken. <laughs> right, right, so, right. So uh, they do pay attention to the yeah the, the I, I would, yeah, I would right. venture that guess that they do. So. It's interesting. And we also had a jump, uh, you know, nearly triple in what our energy consumption was mm. for you know, plugging the camper plugging into stuff. the garage, yeah, in the barn. So. Uh, I, do you do you guys follow Paranoid Ninja on Twitter, Tyler? I know you do. Yes. Yeah, that was an interesting. Uh, I'm I'm still curious what happened there. Yeah. Well, I, I know did. what happened, but well, I mean, this kind I'm of falls on. He did about it. This falls on a mantra of like, don't crap on security researchers. Um, and and I know Tyler, I know you follow, follow Paranoid Ninja, so I uh, will immediately side uh, with Paranoid Ninja on this. Uh, your, Ninja, your story number number nineteen. Okay. Basically made a post. It was like, look, I, I found some O-Day in O365 waiting on Microsoft to confirm whether it's a duplicate or not. Uh, another site 
security newspaper, which I had not heard of, kind of uh, poo-pooed on Paradise Ninja saying, Paradise Ninja's ensuring that cyber criminal groups use these vulnerabilities to organize, organize malicious campaigns aimed at users of this suite. And what the hell? When I look at Paradise Ninja, like that person has pretty good track record tyler right of responsible disclosure with with microsoft um so very very good track record like that mm. is probably not someone you want to take down that track i mean we get back into the whole argument that happens there like a yeah mass media doesn't understand this but b you even have people in our community that get pissed off on tool releasing and yeah and vulnerability disclosement and poc like you know this is like this is an ongoing conversation. There's a lot of people that are going to be on both sides of the fence and you can see the argument from both sides. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to fundamental beliefs on how you think things need to get better. So mm. I, I probably won't take a stance here just because I have respect for both people on both sides and see a lot of point of views. I, I just don't see the media being able to commentary on this, especially in that way without knowing how this happens. I agree. Also, I will comment and say that I lean on the side of information wants to be free. I do believe in responsible disclosure, but I also kind of err on the side of it's better if we all know about it versus if only the bad actors know about it mm -hmm. and the vendor knows about it and hasn't fixed it. And we've seen those uh, situations happen more often than not. And I, I've always been on the side of, look, level the playing field. We should all know about it because at the end of the day, blue teams are creative hackers like a lot of us, oh, and they can come up with creative solutions. Like even if there's no patch, knowing about it, I think levels that playing field. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I want to know about it. I yes. mean, I want to be able to deal with this and not you go, oh yeah, if we tell people, then they'll just exploit it. I'm like, that's fine, but if you tell me, I can stop them I can from do exploiting. About it. I right. can block those damn ports before they come exploit me because right. I didn't even know about the thing. I can make that decision for my environment. Somebody yeah. will find out. I yeah. mean, I mean, some we'll, we'll somebody's going to discover. We'll exploit it eventually. Yep. and they're going to find it. it or not. Well, yeah. it's the Microsoft so, thing of taking down the GitHub. Like I understand. Okay, you control GitHub's platform. But the end but of the day, like, what's the, the point? It's, it's out there. It's already out there. It took me two seconds to get it later because somebody <laughs> said, "Do you have a copy of this?" It was like, "Well, GitHub took it down." But oh yeah, there it is. And it literally, it was just <laughs> mm -hmm. the very first thing in the search. So I'm like, "So taking down the GitHub, what did that accomplish?" All that accomplishes, people are going to put exploits somewhere else and not on GitHub. And there's yeah. dozens of uh, I, I follow a lot of the feeds. You you really that produce exploits. Yeah, you got to embrace this stuff and and and, yeah. and tell everybody about it and say, "Hey, let's fix this." So we're together. saying you got to own it. You gotta own it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> boom. 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 Don't forget to tip your servers. Oh boy. Oh, and and people are owning it, man. Uh, I want to give props to the team over at Grim, uh, Grim-co.com. And I want to tell you what the Bryce is Bryson's company, right? Yep. Um, they do not post a whole lot of blogs. But when they do, man, is it this one was a home run in in particular. This was the, my favorite article of the week. And I mean, they're looking at Linux kernel code and look, oh, yeah. Linux kernel code is it is not for the faint of heart. It's not oh. a lot of people on this planet <laughs> that can write Linux kernel code. They can read Linux kernel code. It is a small minority of people that can read that code, understand it well enough to then point out vulnerabilities in it but then also explain it and write exploits for it like this is 
really serious trade craft. Grim is uh, definitely a prime candidate to do this level of work and level yes. of uh, yeah. exploitation. Oh, yeah. But, but, yeah. but also explain it. I mean, also explain yeah. it in a way. Like, even if you don't understand all of the details, which arguably takes more time than just a cursory read, which this was just breaking this week. We were talking about it in our webcast today uh, with Adrian uh, Sanabria and Brandon uh, from Capsulate. And right. we like all had to like just we didn't get a chance to even put it in the slides because it was we're still trying to understand it. But like basically it, it was funny, Doug, you and I were talking about SCSI because we were talking about a couple of weeks ago about storage. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like there used to be SCSI and I yeah. used to have a mm -hmm. was it a SCSI card? Mm -hmm. Right. It was also supported raid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're talking about like old school storage. Uh huh. And but the Linux kernel still supports SCSI, of course. But what we agreed upon on the webcast today was it was more for iSCSI, which is basically SCSI over TCP. Um, mm. And it, it's sort of that's how the article described okay. it. So I'll, I'll go with that. They didn't go with a huge. Their whole point of the article was you can force the Linux kernel to dynamically load a module for SCSI that then contains. I think more than one vulnerability mm. that you can exploit. And it's not just because I would like read that at first and go, okay, that means I've got like an uh, 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 old 486 that's running a SCSI card or something like that, right? That's not what they're saying is iSCSI kind of brought that to modern kernels, but there's all kinds of packages you can load that then as a dependency, they're loading this uh, SCSI driver and therefore it has a vulnerability and they exploited it. On-demand yep. kernel module loading, uh, which you can prevent with GR security. Brad Spengler's uh, quoted in this article, or mentioned in this article as well. And you can prevent some of that, but just a fantastic write-up. Awesome no, that's an, it's an amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. When I was I was Lee? looking at this the other day, and I was thinking, how many of us realize that you can load kernel modules as a regular user? You don't have to be admin, and that really you can lock down what kernel modules you are and aren't loading um you can yeah and i was just like wait what we talked about this today in the in the webcast lee we talked about user privileges because we think of user versus root but in linux you can get so much more granular i identified three different ways uh set comp which governs system calls yeah linux capabilities which the capabilities really speak to this one because i can grant a process the capabilities to load kernel modules for example mm -hmm. um and then we talked about app armor you know app armor is more like a sandboxy more firewall kind of way to re uh restrict a process that's done at boot time uh where capabilities can be done on the fly and seccomp governs syscalls but all of these are basically like different ways to govern privileges within a Linux system and how complex that all becomes when you have all three of these mechanisms plus the standard kind of PAM uh, privileges, you know, within Linux and how all of these things interact and it kind of all kind of ties together with new old bugs in Linux kernel from yeah. Grimm. Awesome I, I had actually come, come across a different way to, to thwart it and that is um, you can use the, the mod conif and you can not only unload a module, but you can change the load action on a module to like bin false, so it just fails to load mm -hmm. everything if you get end run. Although I think your stuff's a little sexier and and uh, possibly more thorough. I was going for down and dirty and gritty. Pentest Academy, to your point, where a regular user can load kernel modules, 
one of their uh, container escapes is you load a kernel module that shovels a root shell back to you. And it kind of just like blows your mind of the way <clears throat> privileges are controlled, air quotes controlled, with it within Linux. And it's kind of scary. Well, it was, I think the original assumption was that people couldn't get to that stuff. So, mm -hmm. I mean, so it was very difficult to get to it because that was that idea of physical security is locked in a vault right, somewhere. Right. And, and if you can get to that level, you can literally cause it to do just about anything. So you can you can recompile a kernel if you want to and, and add whatever you want into it. What is Gen 2? Yeah, we talked about that. We're like, you know, in the answer to a lot of this stuff is you need to compile everything by hand in Gen 2. And understand it. And understand it so that you tightly control the security of uh -huh. your system. Again, I think there's not a whole lot of people in the world. Like, that's a pretty... Pretty short list of people even, that can that can do even that. Even people or, that can do it don't have time to do or it. Or don't I mean, want to do it, right? Well, yeah. You may have the skills to be able to do it, but like, do you really want to do that? So what you do is you trust it to the distributions yep. to be able to configure that stuff for you. <laughs> but also, keep in mind, what I brought up today in the webcast was the distributions want as many people as possible to use their distribution. So yeah. they're trying to make a larger feature set available for all of us. All this stuff works. And gives you the capabilities, not capabilities in the kernel sense, but capabilities to support all kinds of things if you need or want to, therefore opening up potentially attack surface. Also, each distribution may customize a patch or a fix. They may see that version 2.0 is coming down. They're running version 1. But I just want the security fix from 2.0, so I'm going to backport that into version 1, roll that out as a security fix, but not do all the regression testing against everything in 2.0 so did i just introduce more vulnerabilities did i introduce a new vulnerability did i change the way that vulnerability is exploited like all this stuff in linux is it's just so fascinating to me but also scary the amount of attack surface that we have inside of linux and increasing you, all the time mm -hmm. do you remember when we first started playing with linux in 94 95 and in order to do these kind of things you had to recompile the kernel all the time and, I would yep. recompile and, the kernel and, and when they got those old drive loadable drivers holy crap was that cool or what right so you didn't have to oh. recompile your kernel <clears throat> yep oh and and now a Apple took that away from us kernel extensions and it, well Apple was a, a BSD kernel yep. which also had loadable extensions similar model but completely different code base right right Right. Craziness. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. But cool. <clears throat> but really cool stuff. Also, Lee, I don't know if you have supercomputers uh, that you've come yeah. across in your time. It's something like 90% of the supercomputers in the world run Linux. Yes. Yeah. I didn't That's know that. because of the flexibility. Yeah. I had to look that up. And stuff. Um, but they're not, they're not running Red Hat or something off the shelf. No. It's custom. It's all like, yeah. I mean, yeah. they may have started with one of the standard distributions, but right. then they they did a bunch to it. it they originally were running proprietary OSs. Um, yeah, and uh, that's why I think a couple of shows ago I mentioned NLTSS, the National Lab Time Sharing Service. Mm -hmm. It was a supercomputer OS that was written at at, at Livermore at the time, and. Uh, it was a pain in the ass to get it working and, and going. And mm -hmm. you get a machine, all it could run is the benchmark. Now you get a machine, it's an actually functional machine functional with Linux machine. on it. Right. Yeah. What you said. 
<laughs> so yep. it's 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 it, Linux is like amazing. Um, the hell with the Java enabled ring, a Linux enabled ring, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. Um. Oh, this was interesting. So, a dumb mistake exposed Iranian hackers behind fake Proud Boys U.S. election emails. I have to say, it was kind of even I was a little ignorant as to how much uh, nation states that are deemed so-called enemies of the U.S. Let's say uh, meddled in elections in the way of influence versus right. directly kind of basically stuffing ballots, right? Because I think. Again, it kind of goes back to how the popular media treats air quotes hacking uh, in cyber attacks. And a lot of it is uh, the age old kind of, um, uh, what do they call that? Um, influence. Uh, what the hell do they call that? Now I'm having a mental blank. Uh, in any case, they will try to influence people through social media. Right. Like there's whole organization set up in Russia whose sole purpose is to create fake social media accounts and content mm -hmm. to influence the election. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for example, or influence anything to basically cause disruption here in the US. Right. And right. so they produce this video. However, the interesting part about this is the video showed that hackers computer screen as they typed in commands and pretended to hack a voter registration system. However, investigators watched the video and noticed snippets revealing computer code, file path, file names, and IP addresses, and identified that it came from Iran and was not the U.S. so-called Proud Boys group. So, like, I, like I question how much of what we see on social media, I mean, especially could, in those it images, been, it could have been a deep fake. Exactly, but the yeah. images that people post, how much of that is really seeded, um, you know, with foreign nation states but to create disruption how, here in the US and how easy the public is generally swayed based on like what they see from a video like we had that whole thing with <clears throat> mm -hmm. Biden showing up on the lawn and like you know he didn't even say like more than like 10 words it wasn't anything useful but there's a whole right wing people with like and this is all green screen the president's not in the office it's, you know Trump's still right. there but was that seeded like, by Russians recorded. propaganda was the word I was looking for there propaganda you go. Okay. it's a propaganda yeah, and it was like yeah. what was the point he didn't say anything useful and they're steering an entire like culture around this and obviously people are paying attention because they have a huge following on it but like just where where's the general public's ability to have common sense and not be swayed like if we're talking 80% of the people that are being swayed by this kind of crap like that scares me from just the general education and because like, Tyler, people want to believe people want to believe what they read on the internet they'll believe whatever they want to believe and I want to believe so and the we, truth is out does there it matter? <laughs> right well that's the thing i think we need to educate people that it does matter that you have to yeah, scrutinize what you see that but that's, that's not tradition the tradition especially for older people was that what you saw on the evening news was the truth what you yeah. see in the newspaper and, and, and the evening and news the newspaper the printed right. the truth and so if it's called news it was the truth it wasn't some slanted made up stuff it was actually what was going on so I mean, I, I think it's challenging to convince people that they have to scrutinize things that they see posted because you see, I mean, all of us see it all the time and people buy into it 100%. And of course, these these actors know exactly how to do that. But it's harder and harder to validate things like yeah. even Snopes or whatever, like it, it gets difficult to validate things. Yeah. And then like, how do you trust who's validating it? But then you go to the other end of the spectrum and you expect the social media giants to validate it. 
And if anyone has anything to say about the election, it gets taken down or has a warning message slapped on it. And you're like, but what if that was? How do you know what's true on the Internet? You don't anymore. How do, how do you uh, on the Internet? No one knows you're a dog. Yeah, that's right. what it comes down to. Right? <clears throat> yeah. Even even the people that do this for a living, it is very difficult to find validation sources and do good due diligence. Mm-hmm. So use your damn I, common sense. <clears throat> I, I mean, I've thought of this for years. I mean, what what's to say somebody that the, all the election ads we see, not just on the on the on the internet, but say, you know, just you know, billboards, signs on the side, mailings, who says they're all locally oriented or originated? Does some you know an organization could fund somebody, you know, pay somebody to run an ad here? Yeah, Are they, they commonly do. <clears throat> yeah, t- there's a lot of yeah. tests that the Russians did with the IRA to run propaganda via social media mm-hmm. to affect change in the physical world. Like, hey, we're yep. all meeting at this place at this time and then like hacking into cameras and seeing like, hey, did people like actually meet there? Sure. And they're like, oh, like mission accomplished. Now we know we're going to yep. continue these campaigns because we got people to work. believe in yeah. a story. Yeah, Tyler, you mentioned yeah. something about doing that for years type of thing. And like for, for many years, you know, my mother-in-law would send these mass mail to all of her friends about, oh my God, Bill, if you read, send this thing bill gates is going to give a thousand dollars to or the the toll house cookies and then it became politically motivated and Mm -hmm. blah 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 blah. and for a period of about three years i responded to every one of her posts reply all because she didn't know how to use bcc with the link to the snopes article Mm -hmm. and then she got smart and found out that snopes was in question of like uh, so Snopes that, at some point took a downturn, <clears throat> like yep, in but, a weird direction. Yeah, like, yeah, but so then that, but that was okay because I had done it so much that the people she was forwarding to started to question yes, all of it. That's where we need to get and to. Every once in a while, she slips and sends ones to me, and we get the reply alls of, "Why are you sending this to me? This is completely false." <laughs> like. <Yep. laughs> Yeah. It makes you wonder if the Russians infiltrated Snopes. Mm. Could be. God if they're damn smart, it. they would. God damn, damn it. Russians. And they're, and they're look at, smart. Look at Tyler. Look at Tyler. Look at Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler's like, oh, I, I love this. Son of a... It. My tinfoil hat, Tyler, is Ty- rivaling Tyler, yours right now. <laughs> Tyler infiltrated Snopes. <laughs> it, it's either that. Tell. It's one of those I can neither confirm nor deny type of looks. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And he's shaking his head. Nope. That means he can neither confirm nor deny. We know that look. <laughs> It's all right, Tower. As soon as you find that USB thumb drive with all your Bitcoin I mean, on it, then you can tell oh, us. Shit. <laughs> None of it will matter then. Yeah, that right. won't matter. There, there's a couple of great stories you can you can kind of refer to that that is shown like how influential people can actually be in like the disinformation. I think it was um, we released a, and worked with. Uh, I believe it was a, a Times article on uh, Moldova <laughs> and Moldova's involvement uh, with mass political effect with inside the United States. It was a, a front piece and it, it dug very, very deep into the, to how we looked at that. And it is fascinating, the political motivations, the monetary motivations, and actually who is behind that and how organized it mm. can get. So if, if you are interested, I'm pretty sure it was either Times or Washington Post front, front cover. I uh, just look for Moldova disinformation. Uh, David Sanger's The Perfect Weapon kind of covers uh, some of that as well, just to how I believe it was his book covers just how deep the uh, Russians in particular, not that they're alone in their efforts, uh, were, were digging into this. Um, also along those lines, the way the uh, media 
in this particular case, I'm going to call it the Guardian specifically uh, for I think blowing this article out of proportion. You know, their headline is UK could use uh, Trident nuclear missiles to counter cyber attack. That's what they said. <laughs> That's what they said. Wait, what? Now, like I, I searched the article for cyber and I didn't see any direct correlations. The uh, policy says that Britain would reserve the right to use nuclear weapons in the face of weapons of mass destruction, which includes emerging technologies that could have a comparable impact to chemical or biological weapons. They don't specifically I mean, if you say, don't have computers, you if you blow up all the computers and nuke them, then yeah, I guess they can't really I guess they can't. And the end of the world would tend to stop a cyber attack. So it, it didn't seem like like the direct quote was if we succumb to cyber attacks, then therefore that means we can use nuclear weapons. Oh, no. that, that's not what they were saying, but that's the way the Guardian wanted to spin it in order to get people to click on it. So make sure that you scrutinize that and when it gets emailed to all of your family members like larry says that you <laughs> clarify that like i don't think britain really said like hey if you launch cyber attacks against us we're gonna bomb you with nuclear weapons i don't think that's what britain is saying i think we that would be a stretch perhaps you never know well because everyone <laughs> wants to use cyber weapons so if everyone's using cyber no, weapons no and no one's anything. bombing each other with nuclear weapons then we can just go on using cyber weapons is kind of the vibe that i get yeah from everything that i've read i mean if i had to pick between the two like i'm not gonna lie i probably would pick cyber weapons but yeah i agree yep that that being said you know your water does have chemicals in it so i don't know like that seems like a pretty horrible death as well but that was also a lame attack where they increased the, the line in the water. I don't know, but that, that seemed kind of lame. I don't know what that was all about. It seemed mm -hmm. kind of lame. All I can say is well water, was septic, and the ability to go off-grid. Pure rainwater and precious bodily fluids. It is, it is scary when we, <laughs> we think about industrial control systems. Yep. What did Josh, Josh Marpet had a great, where did Jeff go? Jeff left, but Josh Marpet had, had a, Jeff had a hard stop at nine o'clock. Oh, okay. Uh, Josh Marpet had a great quote. He said, not only in with, uh, and it was, it was beautiful. I meant to call Josh and tell him how beautiful this was because it was in the context of industrial control system security. And he said that not only does the emperor not have any clothes on, the emperor has his own only fans account. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> wow. I think that's the quote of the week on the Security Weekly Network. It was beautiful. That's amazing. It was beautiful. Um, poning the pen tester, if you use uh, Wireshark, many of us do. Um, they looked at the source code and determined that basically 17 years ago uh, was when the bug was potentially introduced that was the root cause of a problem uh, that could pwn people in Wireshark, which, I mean, we've seen with a lot of these systems. I mean, I remember talking to Marty Resch about Snort, uh, Wireshark, uh, processing packets, processing data, uh, and the complexity and challenges associated with that, for sure, to provide that securely. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. Last article, Microsoft Azure's SDK is tricked into listing fake packages. It, the article kind of ends, it, well, it kind of ends in a kind of a, like, yeah, I was able to introduce the malicious package or potential malicious package, but I don't know, someone would have to choose to download it. Um, but basically, it was different from some of the other 
uh, attacks against the supply chain and packages. So it's not a dependency confusion. Mm. The researcher published uh, their package to NPM, added the NPM account Azure SDK as a collaborator. When you do that, there's automated processes. Azure SDK accounts using NPM on GitHub appear to be bots configured to pick up any and all NPM packages that these accounts use and get it listed. It's kind of interesting hmm. uh, dependency yeah. attack. Microsoft did eventually pull, uh, you know, that package. So interesting uh, dependency. Also, no, I lied. Last story was <laughs> water is essential for living. Molson Coors disclosed a cyber attack disrupting its brewery operations. This was a ransomware attack uh, against Molson Coors, and they had to stop production of water, beer, water, beer, water, water, beer, beer. water. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, 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 they may have they had make to, more than cores. Right. Well, I mean, they, they could have been making Store. water to uh, provide to people in Texas who are still without. This is true. <coughs> Brews so, have been known to do that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So it's still unfortunate they had to shut down because, you know, you know, their customers will be missing their product. Yep. I, mean, I think they I mean, should respond with nuclear weapons. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Johnny Lawrence won't be able to get his course banquet. So. What, right. No, no <laughs> one, no one. Is. Come on now. <laughs> what now? I said Johnny Lawrence won't be able to get his his course banquet. Like, oh, who's man. Johnny Lawrence? God, <sighs> is that like an NFT? <laughs> <laughs> Should be. It's a nifty. It's, it's, nifty. Nifty. it's nifty. All right, you apparently need to go watch all the seasons of Cobra Kai, my friend. Oh, I've only done episodes one and two. Good God. And I am the most obnoxious person to watch Cobra Kai because, like, every five minutes. Uh, so my uh, my middle son and my wife and I are watching it, and I'm like, my Dean, my Dean, mercies for the week. <laughs> <laughs> like just randomly, like throughout the whole leg, I'm like, I'm like Shannon, I'm like. Sweep the leg. <laughs> like throughout the whole first two episodes, they're oh. like, Dad, can you knock it off? I'm like, Mercy's for the week. <laughs> oh. It's really bad. It's obnoxious. Uh. But I love watching my family because I just, I'm like, Dean, wax on, wax off. <laughs> it's like, Dad, knock it off. Paint defense. Oh, God, it's so awesome. It is. It, but it is a good show. Just don't watch it with me because I'm totally obnoxious. Oh, dude, I'd be right obnoxious there with you. I had to right. keep, I had to bite my tongue the entire time. Oh, it's so much fun. In any case, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening to this episode of Paul Security Weekly. Larry, take us out. Wax on. Wax off. Sweep the leg. Wax. He said wax. With the skills gap increasing, it's more important than ever to train your staff effectively and efficiently. Offensive Security provides training for your organization designed by the same minds behind Kali Linux. Here are two recent offerings from Offsec. Offsec Academy gives you the chance to earn industry-leading OSCP certification with dedicated one-on-one -on -one mentoring. You can also try Proving Grounds Enterprise, created exclusively by Offensive Security's InfoSec experts for highly realistic simulated networks. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Offsec to learn more. Hey everyone, welcome to the FlexTrack mini-series. This episode will focus on Purple Team exercises and features Bryson Board. You can learn more by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash FlexTrack series. Welcome everyone to the FlexTrack podcast series, getting the real work done in cybersecurity. I'm Paul Storian from Security Weekly. 
Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about purple teaming. I have here with me Dan DeClaus, the founder and CEO of PlexTrack. Dan, welcome. Hey, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. We're excited to be chatting about this, this today. I also have Sean Scott, the VP of Success at PlexTrack. Hey, thanks, Paul. Glad to be here. Love the title. Uh, Bryson Bort, founder and CEO of Scythe, is joining us. Bryson, welcome. Good to see you again. And you're, you're rocking the purple. You got the purple. I guess I got the purple and blue in my shirt, too. So we're, we're color coordinated. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I coordinated that last night, unbeknownst to you. It's awesome. I love it. So in respects of getting things done, um, it's interesting, you know, Bryce, you made an interesting comment right before we started that, you know, we're doing purple teaming. I think I'd put myself in that boat as well. Before it was really, we were referencing it as, as purple teaming. Um, so I thought a good place to start maybe to talk a little bit about purple teaming, how it came about. Uh, Dan, how's that? Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. I think, I think getting the context of where we came and how we got to where we are and what the goal is for it is, is really important. Bryson, you want to take want to take that one? Yeah. Well, let's let's start with start. Let's first start with what purple teaming is, because I think so many folks are like, great. Another color. I mean, how many colors can we fit in here? Red, blue, purple. Yeah. Why, why aren't we doing polka dots and stripes? Right. Yeah. Wait, I want my I want my my red, yellow, and blue polka dotted striped uh, team coming up. And and so there's there. I think there is fatigue about this. But mm. purple team is not something that's radical. It's not something that's completely new. It's the evolution of practices that have already been there. And so when I was talking about before the, the show, how I didn't realize I was, I was doing it then, it was because that name wasn't there for it. Mm -hmm. I think of Purple Team, first of all, simple definition. It's a collaborative, milestone-driven approach to red teaming. That's it. It's just a different way of red teaming. And for those of us who have been doing offensive operations for a long time, there were a lot of us who were looking at, hey, you know, just going away and beating up on our client and then coming back with, look at all the things we found, didn't seem to be the most effective way. And they would ask us questions and we started to realize, well, what if we brought more of that collaborative nature into what we were doing? And so that's where I found my incident, myself incidentally talking around working on, I really want to emulate realistic adversaries and not just do we wins. And I wanted to help the client get a lot more from the engagement. Is it more like a, an exercise as we would kind of reference in, in more of a military term? Is that accurate? So uh, th th where you can have, so everything's on a spectrum, right? Like you can mm. do um, red teaming in lots of different ways. And there's that crossover to where it becomes different levels of purple teaming. I mean, the simp most simplistic purple team is offense and defense working together. But where you're going is you can absolutely use purple team concepts to bring in the executive leadership to have a strategic nature to the understanding of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good to call it an exercise because with the milestone driven approach, we have a very clearly understood left, right limit scope and then the actions that our adversary is going to be taking that we're working on together. Mm. Dan, your, your thoughts on, on, on purple teaming, because I know this is, is strategic to your mission at, at PlexTrack to be able to capture the, the results, right? I think is, is probably the, the primary goal, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about like a milestone based approach, you know, you really need a, an effective way to not only collaborate throughout that entire process, right. Um, you know, conducting purple team engagements in a periodic and a, in a, in a strict cadence, not only using external service providers, but doing that as an internal um, function uh, is really important. And so being able to track those, those results of each assessment, being able to collaborate on the, on the findings and, and the fixes in the remediation life cycle are vital to being able to achieve those milestones. And I, I think, you know, Bryson hit it right on the head in terms of like the community, especially in the red teaming community has really been focused on this for a long time. I think it's very a new concept to, you know, your, your traditional SOC operations or your defensive, uh, you know, engineers. And, and so being able to understand what the adversary is doing, being able to collaborate during engagements and, and have a better idea of, of what the attacker is actually potentially doing on the inside uh, is really important. And, and so that's, that's, that's why, you know, we talk about, you know, having this milestone based approach to collaborate throughout that entire life cycle and really truly stay focused on the mission that everyone should have is like improving the security posture. So you can detect adversarial activity as early as possible in that life cycle. We've used the term milestone quite a bit already. What are some examples of milestones in a purple team exercise? Go ahead. I mean, I would say, you know, you, you can start small and, and Bryson, you know, you, you definitely can, can chime in here too, but I would say even if you're just getting started, start small, like, Hey, we want to take something from the miter attack framework to take, take like a technique within lateral movement. And we just want to start how, how well can we de detect these things? You know, can we, can we emulate this, uh, this activity in our environment and can we detect it? Right. And then you continue to grow from there. Um, you know, I, I, I love to hear what Bryson has to say on, on how they set their milestones with some of their engagements. Yeah. So um, uh, Dan offered the adversarial driven milestone um, and MITRE ATT&CK course is a wonderful compendium of, of those. I do like to note it's not a complete compendium. They're still discovering new ones. Uh, the yep. Solar Winds hack uncovered a few new techniques that are going to be added to it in the next version. Um, but there's also the defensive driven milestones. Maybe we want to look to see if our firewalls catch certain things. Maybe we want to see what our EDR does or doesn't do. Um, and so there's different approaches from different angles. And yeah, I mean, fundamentally, anything you're running on the network is technically going to be adversarial. So it's going to, going to fit into that. So you're naturally going to be doing the TTPs. Um, the things I like to stress here is that, um, that minimum scope, of course, is going to give you minimum value. If I'm just looking at one command, that's a that's a very simple check. Um, the full spectrum of that is I want to be able to evolve where I'm working step by step through a realistic overall campaign. And the reason for that is context is so important. Um, my favorite example to give to that is like screenshots. We all take screenshots all the time. Well, when is a screenshot good or when is a screenshot bad? And being able to start to put that in the context of your environment by working that within, well, I know if I see somebody doing these kinds of things, then I can start to tell where a screenshot preceded by these actions and by these act, you know, followed by these actions is credential theft because that leads like going to Dan's example to this kind of lateral movement. And this is how that looks in my environment. Being able to tie that whole thread together now gives you a holistic assessment of the people and the tech. And then, of course, going to the exercise part, you can bring in process to it. And now you're really doing a very realistic, complete assessment of all aspects of defense in your enterprise. Yeah, and I think that's a great point because, you know, a lot of 
directors of security or CISOs today, you know, they're asking the right, you know, they're starting to ask deeper questions. You know, we've, we've, we've come to this age in our, you know, industry where we've invested a lot in our cybersecurity infrastructure. Uh, and now we want to start seeing like, how well is it working, right? Are, are the, are the things that we've invested in like the firewalls, like the EDRs, you know, are they, are they actually being configured correctly? Are we working? Do we need to replace them? Do we not even need to have them at all because they're pointless? And, and so I think the, you know, an effective milestone-based approach with the purple team uh, really helps to identify the answers to those questions. Um, I'd be curious to know what Sean has to say re- related to some of those discussions that he's had with, you know, some of our customers, but. Uh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to harken back actually to my, my DOD days a little bit. You know, Paul, you know, you, you asked the question, you know, is a purple team engagement like a, a military exercise? Uh, in the world that I come from, it's, it's not like an exercise. It, it is the exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to tie it in with this milestone-based approach is every good exercise starts with, you know, planning requirements. What do we want to learn out of this? And, you know, to Bryson's point, it could be an offensive uh, objective. Are we susceptible to these things or a defensive objective? Are our defenses going to protect us against these things? And so while absolutely 100% agreement with, uh, with Bryson's discussion about the need to step through all phases of a campaign to, to really effectively test all those things, one of the challenges that I am seeing today with the customers uh, and partners that I'm working with is just, quite frankly, the, the tyranny of the now. You know, very few people have Purple Team or in their title. And Purple Team is a, is a thing that's brought together by, you know, with people who have other responsibilities. And so some of the, the bigger challenges that I've seen in the, in the debriefs of, of our partners who are uh, actively using PlexTrack as part of their Purple Team engagements is just they overscope. They always put way more in than they ever have time to, to actually accomplish. Uh, but instead of, I think, a more effective approach is let's be realistic about what the milestones are that we're trying to achieve in this particular engagement. But let's plan more of them so that we can get to the full campaign testing over a defined period of time uh, in a realistic way. How do you, how do you balance testing the process and testing the various defensive tools? Right, because it sounds like you don't want to narrow the scope so much that you're only testing a few different processes, maybe a few different tools, but maybe perhaps focus on some of the tooling first. Like, how do you structure it so that you can look at all of the various investments you've made uh, in technology and testing those particular components? Is that is that an aspect to this to purple teaming? I, I would definitely yeah, say I, this, and, and I'll probably you know have a few comments that point punted over to Bryson. But um, I would say you know the iteration and the continuous assessment lifecycle is really something that that needs to be honed and driven. Right? It's it's not a uh, we're going to do this once a year and have a, a, a big adversarial campaign where they they go through all this the ma- major you know attacks and techniques through through the lifecycle. But uh, you know that should be kind of your goal each year is like that's what we're building up to. And, and in, in my opinion you know, this is what we've seen, you know, help our customers kind of get going and get into a, into a, just a continuous assessment mindset where, you know, you're going to set goals each month. Like, here's the things that we want to, you know, show coverage in and start to build up to that full campaign. Uh, and, and I think it really changes the, the, the mentality of, Hey, it's not just a, a point in time exercise. It's a continuous thing as well as a training opportunity, right? You know, the blue team can really learn a lot from, you know, what the red team is doing in, 
in real time, right? And and not have to focus as heavily on you know the the aftermath, but you know learn in the in the in, in during the engagement. Here's here's what they're doing. Here's what what our defenses are seeing or not seeing. And so you know I think it's a it's a it's important to, to realize it's not only a component of your assessment program, but also your training program. But I'd love to hear you know what Brian has to say. I mean, sorry, Bryson. <laughs> Same thing, just add an S. So uh, <laughs> first, like the naked picture, I mean, this is why uh, Dan's team and my team work together. Um, our, our platform allows you to very easily put these things and then continuously use them as you want to and grow from there. Um, going back to your question, Paul, I mean, scope scope can be defined again by whatever that ROE is, right? If I'm just doing this in a lab on one host, then I'm just looking at host controls and that's the scope of that. If I'm doing this in a production environment, maybe I start to include the fact that um, the IR part of this doesn't, you know, doesn't know what's happening. And so they see, they respond to this like a real assessment, kind of like what you would get out of a black box red team. Um, and so I can now see what that process looks like tied to the tools of what should they have seen? When should they have seen it? When did they see it? And then measuring their response time on that. Uh, and then again, this is, what, you know, this is what the Scythe platform does is it allows you to repeat that. And the value of repetition is the fact that one, things change in the environment, right? A business mm -hmm. is constantly trying to do different things. Different users are doing different things. Everything is changing. And that's affecting what your defensive stack is able to do. Um, being able to have that visibility is valuable. And the, the part that I get into, because it's very easy to start looking at what we're talking about here, looking at the MITRE attack framework and going, well, I just have to check off all those boxes and now I have complete defense. That, that's not how it works. Do not use the MITRE attack framework as a checklist or as a bingo card. Mm. You will find yourself with a false sense of security, no pun intended. Um, what you'll find as you do this over time is you'll start to establish these metrics that kind of approach a natural, mature security of this is the percentage we're able to detect. This is what our response times are on that. And combined, that will give the, C the CISO a really good feel of how mature, robust, and maintained that organization is because it's it's going to be something that's constantly like gravity trying to be pulled down. So the more you run it, the more you naturally going to keep whatever that number is. And during this iterative process, I'm assuming like I, I want to know how much the uh, offensive security team is guiding the defensive security team to go, well, we bypass this control and here's some guidance like how much is the the knowledge transfer about the guidance of here's how you tune that sensor here's how you apply that patch here's how you change that configuration and monitor so that you do catch it the next time and now let's do it again is the the red team providing that the blue team providing that and what, what's that collaboration look like full and open collaboration mm. red team's techniques are not secret wizardry to be kept right there to be shared so that we are assured that those happen um and this is this is one of those things where we've, we've talked about for several years that there's a there's a tension inside the offensive community around well if i burn my techniques how am i supposed to test you uh and the reality is when we go to this collaborative approach it's not about red winning each time yeah. right um a great example is um uh, what's, what's a good one? Um, ah, like uh, making sure that uh, you have, uh, you know, allow listing for binaries. 
So only these binaries should be able to run in my environment and checking that at multiple points throughout the enterprise, because you might be surprised that controls are not uniform. Mm -hmm. So let's go, let's create, um, you know, a standard malicious payload and name it some XE and see what happens. And we're going to run it at multiple places. And we confirm that those controls all worked. Check. So we've now completed, you know, that basic component of working on a host. Next step. Let's add that malicious payload from this exercise to the allow list. Now, what we've done is we've basically, for not a lot of money, right? That was basically free to do that. We've given you the equivalent of what a true adversarial intelligence can do. They can do that. They can find a way to break that control. So instead of us breaking it ourselves technically, by doing that, We've still acted like that tradecraft was successful and we're able to continue on the campaign and you didn't have to spend a lot of money to run down the technical piece. I, and in yeah, this I case, love that because I'm not asking Bryson to go steal a code signing certificate from Microsoft to do it, yep. right? We can, <laughs> we can simulate that. Yeah. yeah. So it's now bringing the assumed breach, not just from like, that's what starts the campaign, mm. but it's now like assumed breach across each part of the TTP. And going back to the original question, red is not losing techniques because red's purpose is validating that blue's controls are working to the best of their extent. Once we've done that, we take the next step and we keep going down that line in order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that you bring up a great point is like being able to track and communicate. Here's all the things that we did. Right. So, it, you know, I think, I think red teamers have, you know, just naturally not had to document a lot of the, the procedures that they conduct in an assessment. And so as, as an organization matures, those reports may become much smaller in terms of the findings. And so the, the, they may feel self-conscious, at least I used to like, if, if like I was, I was a web pen tester, but, you know, hacking into, you know, organization and having a really small report makes you feel like you didn't get much work done. But, you know, through this collaborative exercise, like, and, and using platforms like Scythe and PlexTrack, you can actually document, here's all the things that we've executed and attempted over time and really start to show your trends. And I think that's an important piece of the, of the puzzle is that um, this is, this is a growth exercise. It's not a compliance framework, right? You know, MITRE ATT&CK framework is not a compliance framework and you hit it right on the head. You don't, you don't check all these boxes and then you get a certification that, you know, you're, you're, you're compliant. Uh, it's, it's an evolving, you know, uh, you know, set of these are the things that are being seen in the wild, you know, that now that they exist. So at a minimum, you should be able to test against these things, right? And I think to really squeeze the, the most value of the time when you're actually in the exercise, that transparency and collaboration has to be real time. Um, one of the, I think the things I didn't uh, find particularly effective about some of the, the exercises that I've been in in the past is that even though we say, you know, we give lip service to 90% of the learning happens in the debrief, if it's not until we have that aha moment and it's seven o'clock at night and everyone's tired that you fully comprehend what happened, you've missed all those opportunities throughout the day. So however your, your process is set up for your engagement, uh, you really need to have the tooling and the culture in place for the real-time collaboration. You know, the, the keeping of the secrets can, can happen throughout the engagement, but if we're keeping them while we're doing it and not being fully transparent about all the actions that are taken, uh, then we're, we're definitely missing out on training opportunities. 
Do does the blue team change controls during the uh, purple teaming engagement? In other words, Bryson, back to your point, like okay, I've got this whitelisting binary uh, defensive control, but the you know the first engagement with the the purple team is well, we bypass that control. Does the red team then coach the blue team like go fix that and let's rerun it again, or do you wait to the end, or is it some mixture? You improve as you go. So uh, we've all seen this in pen testing and red team engagements where they go away, they come back, they drop the big report, right? They come back a year later and same do something the same, do something different, <laughs> drop the same report because it wasn't fixed, right? This yep. solves that. We're we're working with you as we go, and we're fixing it. And it's more than just fixing it; it's also tuning it. Yeah, because that's right. going back to yep. that process of my ability to respond. Well, the hardest part for blue team is, I mean. First, of course, is am I even logging and seeing the events? Right. Once I know I'm logging and seeing the events, how do I get through all that noise and provide context so that I can respond to what really is a problem? Um, because that's what the purple team is doing, right? It's generating functional noise to reduce the amount of noise in the environment. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I really like that. I, that's, that's really interesting to me because I, I often find that a lot of the improvements can be process and it sounds like the purple teaming is addressing both the technical controls in addition to the process and communications together right yeah. they have to go together yeah I, you know i almost i almost see it as kind of um you know that that the the general security team and the security engineering fu function or operational function is really uh, taking taking steps out of the playbook from just your software development life cycle and now that this you know application security development life cycle where you know trying to do things at speed and at scale as you know as you know things are changing all the time right you know in the in the software development life cycle code is getting pushed all the time now you know so how do you how do you create as minimal fr friction as possible, but keep the security uh, focus and the testing and the validation there. And I think that that's where the purple team is really functioning uh, an important role as, as, you know, as we continue to grow and mature, uh, you know, within our industry. And, you know, so, so I think it, we've honed in on that. Yes. Security is 90% process, right? You know, if you don't, if you have all these tools, but don't have a way to, to manage them, to monitor them, to configure them effectively, then, then they're just shelfware. And so really using the purple team concept and function to improve your security posture, get into a continuous assessment mindset, maintain an assumed breach. I think, you know, that's another good point is that this is always in an assumed breach um, function. Um, there's nothing that the solar winds hasn't taught us that everything needs to be an assumed breach mm -hmm. at this point. Right. I mean, um, you know, we, we can continue to focus on phishing exercises and security awareness training. It's important, but somebody's always going to click on a link. Something's always going to get through. Right. So continuing to hone on that defense in depth and making it a continuous process. And that's where that automation really helps come into play as well. So I'm going to push back on Dan on that. Um, it does not have to be assumed breach, right? It doesn't have to be assumed breach, right? When we talked about like the allow listing for application execution example, you can do that the hard way if you want to. And there might be value for your organization to spend money um, and significant resources, right? To figure that out. Going to the assumed breach model. So as a former army officer, I keep everything stupid simple because I'm not that smart. The, the blank look is not <laughs> fake. And so the way I break this down is there are three phases to an attack. Reconnaissance, I need to collect intelligence. So I put my target package together. Access, I need to get in. And then post access, what do I do? 
Um, and so assumed breach is just saying, I'm going to start in a post-access environment because going to Dan's example, like with SolarWinds and like, again, we will we'll see probably something next week and the week after that, there's always going to be a way in. Part of that is because it's not only a technical problem. So there's always a way in. But there can be value in understanding what you look like at the reconnaissance phase. And there can oh, be sure. value yeah. in understanding how easy or hard is it to get access, knowing, of course, that you're not really comparing against a true capability, but it is a, you know, some outcome of a snapshot of that understanding. The reason assumed breach is valuable is, again, one, it is going to happen. And so that's, that's we, you might as well start there, right? Two um, is contextual business risk. What an attacker does to you starts in the post-access phase. Access just gives me shell. Post-access is where I steal your things or I'm you know, breaking things. Being able to work with what you can control as defense, because this is one of those things where defense always feels like, oh, this is just what happens to me. Well, here's an area you can actually control it, right? Those are your hosts that you have controls on and your people that are there. That's your space. You can control that. And so focusing the effort on bringing those components as best in your control to really highlight the things that can happen. That's why the assumed breach model is so valuable. But I do want to caution that doesn't mean it's the only way that you can do things. You can still do it the hardcore way. And there are definitely organizations that that has value for. Do you? Oh, I, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I think kind of where my perspective was on that is that, you know, th that there's been a lot of focus on just getting in. Right. And, and once they're in it, you know, it's just easy, right? It's you the know, donut it's example you had so, right before we started. Yeah, right? people <laughs> focused on what, what happens post access. No, but I completely agree. Yep. It's that hard, crunchy outside and soft, chewy middle we were referencing right. with donuts uh, <laughs> yeah. earlier. But uh, my question is, in when you think about where to start and focus a, a a purple teaming engagement do and i'm sure this may the answer can be it depends but do you focus on from a blue team perspective where i think i'm strong or do you focus on an area that the blue team believes we might be weak in or do you identify those things and then kind of map a strategy I'll give my perspective and then I'll, I'll, I'll punt to Bryson. But, um, you know, when I was a security director, you know, we started doing this internally, you know, we had a small, small blue team, uh, had a couple guys on our team, uh, that had some offensive experience, but not a whole lot. You know, they had, they had gone for the, they actually achieved the OSCP. So we're really excited about that. So we, we, we just sat down as a team and we thought, okay, where, where do we think, what does our gut, you know, say like, here's, here's where we think we're weak. You know, we've invested in this next gen firewall we've tuned that for the last year you know and we've got a sim that's you know providing some pretty honed alerts you know so where do we actually think that our weaknesses are from a gut perspective and that's really just the context of your environment and so that's where we started some of those purple team exercises you know you know taking kind of chunks at a time out of those you know tactics in the tact life cycle um, and so we started with you know something around like lateral movement and privilege escalation you know we felt like we might have some gaps there you know that's going I think that's going to really depend on on the context of the environment, um, but that was the approach that we took, and it and it, and it did you know it did show fruit. And I would piggyback on that, Dan. That while a lot of organizations are not going to have the level of maturity necessary to to get to this level, um, if you've got 
any way to derive local threat intelligence. You know, if your SOC is not just playing whack-a-mole and responding, but actually doing some roll-up um, and providing some sort of ideas and feedback about where do we think the bad things are at least being attempted. Uh, but once again, you know, you, you've got to have a certain level of maturity to have the ability to derive local threat intelligence. Yeah, I, I think that that really brings it together is it's where is your maturity because that's going to drive your focus. Um, if you do not have a lot, you're probably right. Maybe maybe validate how what your MSSB can see um, your EDR, AV, what actually does it do? I mean, the, the, the fundamental thing here is we're we're validating our assumptions. Mm. Um, almost every single one of these yeah. engagements. Uh, I think there's only been one out of all the ones I've done where they said, hey, we want to check this. We're pretty confident that, you know, we paying this amount for this product and it didn't catch it. It didn't work. It did this <laughs> or didn't that. And it's not, it's not a fault of the security product vendor. It's the fact that you can't just install a product and let it, it'll work with its default configurations. Um, I mean, there's the difference what happens in a lab and then there's what happens to happen with security being tuned to actually work in an environment where it's not stopping users from doing the legitimate business process they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So you're validating yeah. the assumptions that matter. Um, and then you're just you're again, going back to what we said at the beginning, you're iterating continuously from there to maintain that maturity and tuning that you've achieved. Um, how, how does PlexTrack uh, help us? with our purple teaming exercise and, and to a certain extent extent also you know how scythe plays into the picture yeah absolutely so i mean you know we provide a platform for that collaboration and the continuous uh visibility into the testing assessments that are going on uh and and being able to pull in you know resources like uh results from scythe right so that you can automate the activities but you know it provides that central collaboration point and then you have that historical record over time to be able to track analytics and continue to report up the chain here's how we're growing here's how we're making progress in our security posture uh, so it really serves as that mechanism for uh, the, the central point for collaboration and being able to report the issues that are coming in, be able to quickly remediate and track the uh, track the remediation lifecycle within PlexTrack. Um, you know, and then, you know, we integrate with sites. So being able to bring in uh, the automated campaign data so that, you know, you can continue, you know, continue to focus on that, uh, that continuous assessment mindset. We've talked a, a lot about milestones uh, through this segment. And one of the key things that uh, I find that our partners find value in is that uh, through Runbooks, PluxTrack really helps you keep the engagement on the rails. You know, once you have taken the time to do the proper planning, you've set the milestones, you've identified the procedures you're going to undertake to test uh, whether or not you've achieved those milestones. Uh, that's that's harder than it sounds. Um, and PluxTrack is providing our partners um, with a, a collaborative way to to run through the execution and ensure that throughout the the entirety that there is that real time transparency and that everyone is staying on focus that there's not squirrel going on here you know we we got off on this tangent saw an opportunity and took it no these are the things that we want to accomplish we can definitely add things in real time uh, if there are targets of opportunity that we wish to engage uh, we have an easy way of bringing that in as well uh, but ultimately you know we talked about the importance of process process is great but you also need the tooling to ensure that everyone follows the process so plug track helps keep us on process and uh, assist with all that data collection to track that remediation so that the next time we do this hopefully we're scoring better yeah, it's a, it's amazing to me uh, this 
concept not only applies to a purple teaming exercise, right, but to lots of other activities that you may do in a, in a business. And that is there's so many different tools we can use to collect this data. Like, oh, we're going to share some notes on Notion, Bryson, and we're going to do a purple teaming exercise, right? Then we're going to cut a PDF and we're going to share it on OneDrive or SharePoint or some mixture of whatever, however those products work together, right? <laughs> then we're going to email it around and then there's going to be Slack notifications. Right? And what I like about, about PlexTrack is we can really solidify that this is the platform because in a purple teaming engagement, it in just speaking with all of you, super important that everyone's literally on the same page working off of the, the same platform. I think that provides a tremendous amount of value. Dan's like, yeah, you should buy it, right? Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me pitch back to Flextrack here, right? Like the biggest thing I think here besides keeping it on, um, because one of the challenges to the way we've done things over time, and now we're saying, hey, we're, we're going to make it a little harder for you because we're bringing more people into the room. We're bringing more into the room. We're bringing more process. And that's more effort. And that's the daunting part of this stuff. Well, there are tools that help make that easier, right? Flextrack makes that easier. And so it, it, for not a lot of money, you suddenly find something that's doing what a tool is supposed to do, which is make your life easier to run this. Mm. But here's the part that I think is really going to appeal to a lot of folks. What if your output reports were written for you? Mm. <laughs> it does it. It does it for you. I it's know. so cool. Like, I don't have to do all that writing. And that's the part we all hate the most. Everybody wants to be elite hacker. Nobody wants to be the technical mm -hmm. writer. FlexTrack does that for you. And arguably, Let's, it's the most important and most valuable part of the entire engagement is that report. If I can't communicate it, mm -hmm. I can't make it happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. We've also discussed uh, one of the challenges being limitations on bandwidth and time and overscoping. And one of the things that I really enjoyed seeing as an addition to purple teaming is the introduction uh, of these automated threat emulation tools like Scythe, because we've only got so many hours. Everyone's got jobs to get back to. This engagement's going to have an end time. If we want to obtain the most coverage, how can we automate that? You know, in some of the debriefs recently that I've had uh, with clients who've been performing purple team engagements, a lot of the, the challenges and failures, quite frankly, came from failures of them to, to implement the tooling. Um, things just didn't work. You know, they couldn't test the thing because um, they went and they pulled down some procedures, you know, from, from some website and tried to run them and, and it, it failed. Um, if you can have a turnkey solution that allows you to test things in an automated fashion, um, you can definitely gain a whole lot more productivity. So we're huge fans uh, of tools like Scythe, and, and that's why we're happy to partner with them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think if if there's one other thing that, that is a, an important concept is that you know everybody knows that there's going to continue to be a shortage of talent and skills in security, and so you know everybody points to how do we automate more of these things, and you know things like Scythe and and PlexTrack working together really help keep your your team focused on the right things and eliminate all of the wasted time so that you don't have to go hire you know, 10 more people to get the same output. Right. And, and, and keep morale up, you know, I mean, there's, there's nothing more mm. morale, uh, you know, breaking than, Oh, I just completed this three month assessment and now I got to write, you know, a report that's going to end up being 500 pages long. Right. <laughs> so yeah, really speaks to getting the real work done. So Sean, Dan and Bryson, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thank Thanks, you. Bryson.